That rug really tied the room together, did it not? Fucking A. This guy peed on it. Donnie, please. Hello and welcome to the never-ending movie marathon. I'm Rocco. I'm Alex. And I'm Matt. We're three filmmakers, friends, and film fanatics on a mission to curate the ultimate movie binge, one film at a time. With a strict policy, hashtag no stinkers. On this show, we do mini marathons, short curations of our favorite films based on themes we take turns picking. But before we kick things off, can you once again do us a huge favor and please follow, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts? That's right. After last week's games that tested both our physical and mental fortitude, aka the Cohen Bro Olympics, we now begin our tribute to one of Hollywood's most interesting and talented directing duos. This week will shine a lava lamp light on the classic stoner noir and Anton Silvercoin winner, The Big Lebowski. Woo! Anton Silvercoin being obviously a reference to No Country for Old Men and the second place winner in our Cohen Bro Olympics. That is right. That's right. Listen to last episode for a lot of uh, fun, fun and games where we put a bunch of uh, Coen Brothers movies, all of their movies in the uh, what is it? 18 films in their, yeah. their mm-hmm. oeuvre. Yeah. Against one another in a bunch of ridiculous rounds of uh, skill like synchronized swimming, the best overall cast, long distance actor, best frequent collaborator. And then awarded a bunch of gold and silver medals out and picked our favorite movies. That was fun. And unsurprisingly, this one did pretty well, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> I was not shocked when the Big Lebowski came as one of the winners. It's it's such uh, weirdly, you know, in comparison to some of their other films, because obviously they've had hit or misses at the box office, right? Some some films have been very, very successful, like Fargo. And then some movies like A Hudsucker Proxy, not 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 as not as successful at the box office. And the Big Lebowski was one of the ones that saw less success at the box office, but still people loved the movie. Like the, the core audience that it spoke to loved the movie and that grow, grew slowly over time and has now become this massive cult classic. Yeah, I, I feel like that's, I mean, that's certainly been my experience with the movie, one that I saw early on, but didn't, it wasn't until subsequent viewings that I really understood it more and really could appreciate everything that it is. And now, you know, 20 years since probably the first time I watched it, um, it's a movie that I watch, you know, two, three, four times a year mm-hmm. and uh, and has really grown to be one of my, my favorite Coens. You know, the first time, I remember the first time hearing about it um my dad it was my dad saying that he and his friends from their bowling team were gonna go see the see this movie and at the time (laughs) i remember thinking like bowling comedy it sounds a lot like kingpin i just figured it was you know another 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 king themed bowling classic king ralph Ralph. (laughs) oh king ralph yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah, which you know john goodman wow um I think that was but, why I liked it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then, you know, probably first saw it when it when it was on DVD. I didn't see it in the theater, um, but didn't certainly didn't get it. I, I think yeah. I thought it was interesting and I was getting into this was around the time that I was getting into the Coen brothers. So I understood sort of the 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 voice and, and the point of view and that sort of thing, but not really the culture or the, you know, really all of the the texture and, and everything that this film's about um, that that stuff didn't, you know, didn't I couldn't appreciate that until later in life. And um, and then when I in fact, I remember I had a, a high school uh, math teacher who was also a football coach. And I remember him saying like, uh, 
Big Lebowski is one of my favorite movies. Like, you know, he was like, we were, they were going to watch it or have some screening of it or whatever. And this was not, this is like a square guy who I didn't think was interested in film at all. And to hear him say that this is one of his favorite movies really made an impression on me um, because I had seen it and understood it as this really unusual film. Uh, very yeah, like right. art house and, and like non-mainstream with some very like out there ideas in it and that kind of thing. And so it surprised me to hear that it had, you know, that he appreciated it that way. And then come to find out, yeah, that, that a lot of people really love this movie and, and especially people of, of, you know, my parents' generation got it and, um, and, and, you know, were able to like, it, it was accessible to them um, and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. It kind of missed with their usual crowd of like the, you know, cineasts and the, the art yes. film crowd, you know, that had loved them and embraced them and awarded them with Oscars the year prior in 1997. This film comes out in 1998 and it kind of missed with the, the big heads that they're usually not, uh, you know, uh, who usually embrace their films. Like, you know, sometimes their films are very challenging and really just kind of weirdly hit with an audience. I kind of don't know which ones are going to, going to be the ones that people remember or, or have any sort of like cultural, like you never would have thought, Oh brother, where art thou was going to kind of be a crossover cultural yeah. sensation uh, after the big Lebowski fell on such dead ears, you know, and then sure. following the, the man who wasn't there coming after it, after they've won back all this, you know, all the accolades and all the, uh, the crowd appeal and everything. I don't think anybody even remembers that movie exists, let alone it's, that it's, it's the movie that was great there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And and that was one that I was lucky enough to see um, a, a theatrical screening of it. But the only way we got to do that was because a local university was having had their like um, art house, uh, like like uh, screening series that we oh, had to sure. go to yeah, a yeah, yeah. college to see it on a one night only kind of uh, showing. It did not play, you know, near us or anything like that. So, um, yeah, yeah. It was, and that was the only time I, I saw it. I, I only watched it that one time. Yeah, no. So it's, it's just interesting like to think like what is if any of their other films in their, you know, kind of deep catalog are going to have these second lives down the road or if any right. of them are going to come back around because they, you know, they have not their star has not faded. Like no matter what no, they're it doing, hasn't. it's always something interesting. And, you know, even when they announced that they were going to Netflix and made, you know, that big, big splashy announcement, I think it can. Uh, but they were like, we're streaming motherfuckers was was what <laughs> the Coen brothers yelled, you know, when they were making this thing. And then, you know, Ballad of Buster Scruggs was a super interesting little little film that they did. And still, I yeah. feel like connected and because it was on Netflix, everybody could watch it easily. But right. I don't know. It just it's interesting to see that this is the one that the culture reclaimed, came back around and was able to. To find that audience kind of outside of the you know the what they would call the big heads the the uh like you know smart art film crowd that kind of rejected it at first you know and then right. i think now have come back around and realized like oh we were being dicks uh and this movie's <laughs> kind of great i 100 agree with that point i think there's yeah. multiple waves of this film like hitting yeah, right sure. there's like because there's different generations that saw this film there's the generation that saw it in the theater and it resonated with and then like you said there's the more highbrow like like artistic minded individuals that loved all their other movies and maybe you know knocked it off initially and then they came around at some point in time and realized the genius of the movie because it is such a like it is a it is a it is a movie 
uh, that on rewatching it and seeing it again and again, you get more and more out of it. And even though its plot is loose, its characterization and small details really, really kind of sing to you in different moments. There's things you always notice differently or things you didn't notice that were there. There's there's actually the dude's wearing a, a bowling shirt at the end that says Medina Sod, and it's actually from a bowling league uh, in Medina, Ohio, which is like not too far from where I live, uh, oh, which yeah, I, yeah, I think yeah. is... Yeah, which I think is amazing. But so all those small mm. details, and that's not one that you need to pick up on, but just small details like that um, are, are things you look back on. And then there is other generations younger than us who picked up the, on this later because it became this kind of like cult classic. So there's so many different people viewing it. And then obviously there's the insanity that goes with everything around this movie, like the conventions and the stores yeah, and, and, the, and the weird religion. Yes. Yeah. That, that that came yeah, out of it dudism. so clearly <laughs> it, it like it became this cultural iconic thing and it, it's interesting too because I remember a lot of times the, the first time I see a movie usually it's pretty impactful um, I don't like going back, I don't really remember when I saw this first uh, kind of like the dude my memory around this movie is a little bit hazy um, <laughs> but I do remember like one of the first times watching it. Uh, and I may have seen it partially on TV at first. I don't know. But when I did see it like the second or third time, I started laughing at the jokes because I think I had started understanding some counterculture stuff. I had started understanding some of the weed references. And like also John Goodman's performance is so insane. Like his yeah. character is so wild and off the top, like over the top that like I think after like that third viewing, I really appreciated him and his comedic stylings. And right. to this day, he's still my favorite character in the movie. Like I love everybody in this movie and I love the dude. But like I think I think Goodman is just like, fi yeah. like firing and all it's the best. It's absolutely yeah. the best. And, you know, that like we quoted it a lot in high school and especially mm -hmm. Walter's lines and some of that stuff. And I remember being, you know, like really into that. But I but didn't. Yeah, it wasn't until college. That the that the movie itself really like uh, uh, sunk in, and that I was able to appreciate like what that movie is really about. Um, yeah, you know what I I also realized is that like f for a lot of my early screenings and experiences watching this movie, it was really watching the first thirty minutes or so. Like the th oh, first yeah. thirty minutes is a self contained run that that ends with the um, the the handoff and the undies and all that stuff. Like yep. that's that that stretch is, that's at the is thirty minute amazing. mark. So the the, wow. the uh, okay. undies the undies throw is at like thirty seven yeah okay they're, they're, okay they're, sure yeah so it's it's um but but yeah the first real act of of the movie is just a thing in itself and there's so much more that happens after that and so many amazing memorable moments that happen from there um, but everything up to uh, to to bring up the ringer is like just absolutely incredible well it seems um, like that's a good place where if you're watching it before you're going out to a party or something in college which is is kind of like this became that movie you know like people yes. always oh, have yeah. Yeah. It was in everybody's early rotation of, you know, a DVD collection. Uh, and, you know, I think every everybody had a copy of it. And then, like, it just kind of was always on or always in the background. Yeah. And, yeah, weirdly. Got and, and every, you know, so everybody knew people. somebody uh, who had in their dorm room apartment had a poster, a poster. Of the, yeah, yeah of course oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like they it was were... definitely part of the college collection i think they were just up in dorm rooms covering up the like cracks and bullshit that they hadn't yeah. used in the last time <laughs> yeah. in like the dorms mm -hmm. that i lived it, in it was big lebowski and fight club and dazed and yeah. confused were like the yep. big ones yep. yeah, yeah. The yeah. i recall being confused. in dorm rooms yeah i think what's interesting though too is that like you know what you're saying i think a lot of the people who did uh accept it and love it and and get really into it didn't necessarily get it either you know mm. or or they were able to 
like the things about it that they like about it, but not dig that deep beyond the surface of like the things that the Coen brothers are really saying with this movie. Cause this movie is entirely about masculinity and it's about like the masks that men put on to look out to the world and then kind of like the hollow little boys that are on inside of them. It's, it's really, you know, it's also like the Coen brothers hating rich people, which they do pretty often. And, you know, like, and kind of that, that whole uh, commentary of like, you know, the slobs versus uh, uh, the, like, you know, the powers that be that, uh, that, you know, the big Lebowski goes on his rant about, but yeah, it's, it's this weird meditation on all of those things and I think a lot of people just kind of take it for the face value. Like, no, it's just this fun movie about these like losers in L.A. who like go on an adventure and then people want to, you know, be the dude, you know, which yes, is like a weird right. thing. Like the, this movie is not an endorsement of the dude, his lifestyle, no. the world. And that's why it works so well. But people still think and look at it and are like, well, I want it. I want that. I want to be that. I want to do that. Even though they introduce him at yeah. the very beginning, like he's one of the laziest people in the world. Like he's <laughs> right. the laziest yeah. person in L.A., which puts him high in the running for laziest man in the world. Right. I think that's <laughs> <laughs> that's a yeah. close to the line. But yeah. And it's like but for some reason, what seeped in was like this guy rules. I want to be him. You know, like, and it, it, that's not necessarily the point, but that's okay. You can still, you can still enjoy the movie. It's not as like corrosive as like maybe a fight club or something where people are like, really don't get it. And then start a fight club. You know, you're not right. going to hurt anyone yeah. if you're just trying to live like the dude. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I, hundred percent agree with that. I also think that the Coen brothers have such a, they're so cagey about the things okay. that that they'll say about their films that like there are clear things there that like I, I agree with the masculinity aspect of things but there are so many theories and ideas that are attached this to this movie that people have had over the years if you go on any like reddit board about it or if you go and look online about theories about the big lebowski there are deep deep cuts on what people believe they, yeah uh, right they are or what this movie's about and the coen brothers will never actually answer that they'll never say that this movie is this or this movie is that and they're so good at making very very intelligent very very like beautiful choices and staying incredibly cryptic throughout without giving like a solid answer that it it, it just it it becomes this like mass texts whether they intend it to be or not where they'll never have to give you like a straight answer about what this film is and yet it is incredibly engrossing and you see where it comes from because it is obviously their love letter to like Raymond Chandler, like crime novels and even uh, Raymond Chandler remakes of films. So like, it's like, it's their version of like, it's less about the story and the plot. It's more about the peoples and the situation within it. And these characters based many of them on people that they know and like eccentrics that they know that, uh, that it's more interesting to have a conversation with them or to hear them talk or see how they react to a situation than it is to have this really convoluted detective story and right. go down that rabbit hole, which I which I really appreciate it because each scene in itself is such a memorable thing. It's yeah. all a hang. It's all this like they're all their own little films in some ways or form because it's Lebowski interacting with all these weird characters, all these weird people. Yeah. Just giving him a prop or giving him an obstacle, giving him like a conversation and then just letting him try to, you know, interact with it and fail miserably and then kind of, of like course. stumble his way ass backwards through it. Yeah. But I mean, you know, what you're saying about it's being a love letter to to Raymond Chandler. I mean, Chandler's books are often like the plot is second, third yes. down the list of importance it's the characters it's it's the situations and Marlowe, of course you know reacts to them often with like philip Marlowe, uh raymond chandler's you know main character that he uses through most of his books was reacts with violence generally whereas the dude Mm -hmm. reacts with kind of this you know stoned like 
post hippie like burnout kind of you know peace you know trying to dis- disarm a situation but like obviously that doesn't work either so it's it's an inversion right. of kind of what marlo <laughs> would do through this new lens but like obviously it's just as uh uh ineffectual as like marlo usually is because marlo is always getting knocked out you know marlo is always yes. like getting the shit kicked out of him or he always ends up having some skin in the game because he got his ass kicked, you know, like there's always, which is so similar to the rug. Like it's, it's some pity reason or, you know, pathetic reason that he's caught up in this big mess and the big mess is not even that important. It's just that there is a mess and you're wanting to see how this character navigates that situation. Right. Exactly. Right. Uh, yeah. He gets his, he, you're right. Marlo gets his ass kicked all the time for being like a, like a, like a bruiser, a shitty bruiser. Cause like you said, yeah. he gets his ass kicked all the time and the same thing with the dude he's a pacifist who gets his ass kicked all the time but he's just so tunnel vision on that one thing which is the rug but i also like that you mentioned that props are things that kind of repel like scenes and moments in this and like fuck him over in some way or form yeah my, one of my favorite moments in this movie is when he nails down the uh the plank <laughs> of wood in front of his door props yeah. up the chair and then the door opens the other direction and then add insult <laughs> to injury after all that is done when he's getting back to his place after all that shitty night that he had he trips over that plank one more time right. and falls in the ground because yeah, right. he completely forgot that he installed it there every <laughs> bit of indignity that they can put upon their characters i mean you know this is the coen brothers trademark often and why they get called misanthropes and cold calculated filmmakers so often is that you know they find all of these ways to torture their characters like they are mm-hmm. the universe they play god puppet masters to their characters and they put them all through different you know circles of hell but right. i don't think any of their other ones has this much fun going through all of the layers of hell as jeff lebowski and i think that's why it's you know so much fun but and maybe why people did like not we're not able to connect to it in 1998 when it came out you know or at least the reviewers and the kind of like uh, usual uh cohen crowd um that had already embraced their films like maybe it was that kind of like this isn't this doesn't have the same level of biting on first view doesn't have the same level of like biting satire that the other films do. This isn't as like, you know, trademark this, this seems more like a cool hang. Like maybe this is too fun. Maybe they've lost their teeth a little bit, but when you really, like I said, you peel back a little bit and this, this movie's got so much going on. And I think you you kind of just miss a lot of the bullshit the first time because it's, it comes at you fast and all of it's delivered with a similar level of kind of like, well, none of it matters. You know, it's all kind of like hand waved off. You never get like a, you know, there's no villain. So nobody's explaining the plot like they would in a usual detective case or a mystery. There's just happenstance and kind of like people fucking up and, you know, miscommunication. Well, the other thing that, that took me a while to realize is is just the this isn't about our generation, right? This is really about no, like yeah. our parents' generation and um, you know, the folks that lived through the, the sixties and um and and that's why I love the um the pairing of Walter and and Dude. Like the dude is this sort of pacifist leftist you know kind of liberal type um and walter's the exact opposite of him this ultra aggressive right-wing gun-toting nut that that in itself is something that has become you know so obvious now um that you know the the duality there um in that pairing but that you know talking about where you know these guys 
came from and what Vietnam meant to this generation and, and to these characters and um, living through the late 60s and, and into the 70s um, and then having to endure the 20 years that passed from, you know, the Vietnam and, and the, the height of that era to where this film yeah. takes place, which which is something in itself, too, that, you know, we were talking on the Brolympics about, like, do the Coen brothers do period pieces and that kind of thing. And this is one. Yeah, you know, it is. This, this film yeah. came out in 98, but it takes place in 1990. Yeah. It's the eve of, of Desert Storm. When he's walking into Ralph's, you're seeing the announcement that this is the will announcement, not stand. which is, yeah. which so is, it's in, 19, which is 1990. Um, yes. But he's writing the check for uh, September 11th, 1991. Uh, Wait, really? there's, yeah. In the September 11th? It's September yes, 11th, it 1991. Man, I, I thought I had picked every last bit dry <laughs> from that. Like, I thought I had thought, I've seen everything, noticed everything by this viewing. Wow. Okay. That's but crazy. That in that, in that, in itself, he's postdating the check so that, because even writing a check for 69 cents, it's the check's going to bounce. Yeah. So oh, it's going to bounce. Yeah. The check so they don't <laughs> take it out for another year. It gives you a sense of how broke this guy is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, another another nine eleven connection. That's, uh, that, that's weird. Really random. Yeah, I I also love in that scene that he before he, he has to he has to test the milk one right. But it's also <laughs> yeah. like that this guy might be so broke that he realizes that they might not accept his check, so he might just need to get one swig in at the store uh, <laughs> yeah. before he, before he, it, it all it all potentially comes crashing down on him. I, I just all of those little small details there are just so great. And one of the other things it happens a lot with the Cohen brothers uh, in general, but specifically really great for the dude throughout this movie is the dude repeats phrases that other people say to yes him, right which he comes off smarter because of it like he's like using <laughs> or tries he's using to. their terminology is, and only sometimes is he actually using it in the right context or using it the yeah, right exactly way, but but, <laughs> but he's yeah this trying. aggression will not stand is exactly. one that he comes back yeah and he he starts yeah. using which is such a funny thing for a you know liberal hippie like burnout character to be you know parroting the lines of a conservative like Bush about, right. you know, a war hawk making this dis declaration that they were going to, you know, rain bombs down on Saddam Hussein. And it's accepted by this hippie in this kind of like silly situation where he's just parroting anything that he hears. He just accepts so much of other people's anything, you know, even the, the line where he's just like, you mean coitus? Yeah. <laughs> it's like you just heard that word you do you have it's just barely rattling around your brain by the time that it comes back out your mouth yeah and he does such a good job of delivering like the lack there of a thought you know where he's like yeah. um yeah come on man it's just like you know there's many layers there's many players he's like it's very complicated yeah. he says that line multiple times which kind of explains the movie in many ways right it's not that complicated but it is complicated there's a right, lot going right, right. on you just have misinformation or you don't have the whole picture so right. it becomes this convoluted mess because you really don't know what's going on and your viewpoint is a guy who just in general doesn't really know what's going on yeah like from day to day and so that's how you're seeing everything you have him and then you have an unreliable narrator in sam elliott uh the stranger who is giving you that little voiceover introduction and then he even gets he trails off he forgets what he's talking about, you know, and it just adds that extra layer of like, wait, what? what are you guys trying to tell me? And they try to overcomplicate the ideas of the very simple, you know, fake kidnapping plot, which sometimes you're just like, wait, what, what even is this movie about? What are you trying to, you know, and you try to unravel all of those levels and you just find out that a lot of them don't matter. 
it just it's all you, you it do. all you know amounts yeah. to nothing it all amounts right. to just you know just that some a bunch of dumb people tried to get rich off of a bunch of other dumb people and they all collided in one night and then like uh the dude got high <laughs> you know <laughs> it's like there's not really more to it than that you got high a number of times. It's funny too, because the dude has moments where he almost gets money, right? Where he almost makes yeah. a bunch of money off of something, but he doesn't re I mean, like he's like, that's cool. But in the end, he doesn't really care. He just wants to drink another white Russian. He just wants to smoke yeah, another sure. joint, um, which I, I love that um, uh, Jeff uh, uh, Bridges, when he was doing this movie, he asked the Coen brothers before each scene, like his direction, what he's like, he's like, did the dude burn one down before? And they would yeah. say yes or no. And based on that, he would just take his knuckles and he'd rub his eyes <laughs> to give the appearance that he was more or less stoned. Yeah. And I just love that that was like, he's like, he's like, I, I know this. Because when the Coen brothers asked him about this role, like he even said, he's like, man, did you guys know me in high school? Like, <laughs> like, like just being this young surfer dude that he was back in the day. And even though this role wasn't written for him, it became abundantly clear to the Coen brothers after they wrote it that he was the best option right. for, for this role. Like I mean, then he he's, was he's wearing, wearing his own his clothes. Own. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Those jellies. Yeah. Those jellies are his jellies. Yeah. And he still has them. He still wears them. So that's a buy it for life. What a, <laughs> yeah, what a thing. Yeah. Joel Cohen said that about, you know, whether the dude had burned one on the way over. Uh, he said that that was the only direction that Jeff really needed from them that, you know, they really didn't give him much about how to play this role besides that. And he said that, you know, like some of their actors they worked with, you know, really wanted to talk about the character and motivations or anything. And, you know, of course the Coen brothers are their, their un own unreliable narrators and the worst people to tell their own stories. But they said, that's the only direction they were ever having to give Jeff Bridges in a scene was the, you know, should he make his eyes bloodshot or not? <laughs> Did the dude burn one on his way over, which, yeah, I mean, there's probably some truth to that. I'm sure they talked more in depth about the character than that. But yeah, it's no one else could have played this. I mean, what, at the end of the day, it's Jeff Bridges or the Big Lebowski doesn't exist. Right. I, yeah. I mean, the other the other options. I mean, I, I don't know what the other options were, if there were any. Did they have any? I, I never saw them it, say it doesn't sound other. like they did. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, same go, goes for Goodman and, and Buscemi, too. Like those were and, and Totoro. Uh, they they, oh, yeah, they and wrote yeah. those roles with them in mind though they didn't write this they didn't write the dude with uh, bridges in mind they right, just realized right. after finishing it they're like holy shit that's that's him that's right like that's got to be him yeah, yeah. And right they the, in that same uh it's the making of um documentary or little like you know video piece that they put on the dvd uh i think it was made you know on set for a lot of it. It's surprising because the Gone Brothers actually participated in it uh, more than you would think. It's on YouTube, but it's also on the old DVD. Um, they uh, also said that <laughs> this is a quote from one of the Coens to give John Turturro something to really sink his teeth into. We made him a child molester. Which, uh, yeah, uh, good Jesus. job, guys. Um, so, so weird that they got away with that, that whole thing on uh, the Jesus uh, and that, you know, Totoro is playing a, uh, a Latinx character. And that then right. later he was like, yeah, I should make this into a, a full length film. Um, I've sat mm -hmm. with this character for enough time. And uh, yeah, I want to bring that back around. And I don't know, Jesus, the Jesus roles is uh, I kind of liked it. <laughs> I hate to admit mm. that, but. It's it's interesting. I, it doesn't it doesn't diminish what I love about the Big Lebowski. It can exist in its own world and it doesn't ruin the Big Lebowski. You know, they're they're weird satellites that maybe 
are orbiting the same planet uh and sometimes yeah that was that was my big concern with it is like does it you know is it going to ruin my my appreciation for no. the uh the big lebowski by expanding that world or trying to put something else in that world but it sounds to me like it doesn't even take place in that world barely yeah it yeah. just for whatever reason he wanted to play this weird character again but yeah there's it's barely it's not really about bowling or any of the things i don't know what it is <laughs> i think i know why for a reason like totoro thought its role was going to be larger first and foremost in the movie he thought it was a bigger role than it was so to kind of like compensate for the fact of that the coen brothers were like hey we'll let you kind of do your own thing with this character like bring your own weirdness to it like bring your own yeah. vibe and so he didn't like he didn't like do any of the lines or write any of the dialogue for the character but what he did do was a lot of his mannerisms and his actions like the ball cleaning and the dance and the lick of the ball all of that yeah. was like his effects <laughs> that he put on the character yeah. i think he just weirdly fell in love with how strange this person was because even when he saw it he was like i was delighted and embarrassed when i saw this character <laughs> on screen he's like which is like a feeling i don't usually get when i watch a role that i play so i think he was just like hadn't hadn't finished with the jesus and had begged the coen brothers to make a sequel and he's like he's like please make mm. a sequel like and ask them multiple times and eventually then was like what if i just direct my own version yeah. of a movie just about him yeah, and got their yeah. blessing to do so yeah that whole bit where he's like dancing backwards in slow motion um it's gypsy king's um the hotel california cover of hotel california yeah. playing like that is just the best he he put that whole dance together he said he was inspired by uh, muhammad ali uh that kind of like the like step oh, backwards okay. Okay, and, sure. and that kind of thing but the thing that there's a couple of things that follow that scene that that i absolutely love um one is the when he's walking back to his seat and he's looking at dude uh walter and donnie uh the reaction on each person's face like like the especially donnie's reaction to the jesus is absolutely hilarious um yeah, yeah each person has their own sort of like uh take on it you know it's the dude on one side we were talking about like the the dynamic between dude and walter but but donnie is like right in the middle um stuck stuck Absolutely. in the middle of these two these two guys and like you know never quite sure of himself of like where he you know what his even his own opinion is on a certain matter or that kind of thing but but then it does another thing when um the the hotel california song gets into the into the chorus and there's the shot of like um the jesus's finger going up and the camera kind of like swirls around his finger and then it whips down to the shot of the of the three guys and kind of pushes in on them and that's like a long take um of them having the whole conversation about the jesus like that's that's kind of one long take they they break it up in the middle there with the um where they actually show the footage of the jesus having to go tell all the neighbors that uh right. that he's been released or he's moving to the neighborhood because he's just been released from prison um but but the the clip itself of of those guys talking to each other is, is still the same take and um so they do this in a couple other parts that we'll talk about later but yeah that idea of like doing something kind of difficult to either start or end a long take and then having a long take of, of dialogue is is just like masterclass like detail yeah it's just like them trying to like pack on the um the the the, the impressive you know aspects of some of their more but subtly like you know of, of their yeah no it's all technique. subtle because you'll miss a lot of that stuff on the first it's oh, not absolutely. a flashy film I, even I didn't with its dream sequences until this and busby berkeley uh like you yeah, know riffs yeah. and everything it is not flashy uh but yeah just just muted all of that stuff right exactly and try to like try to subvert it all just under the surface right definitely also what i love about that scene is they weaponize the eagles and they and they yeah. utilize the eagles to be to create the jesus as kind of their 
bowling alley nemesis, like to really hammer that home that the dude hates the Eagles and seemingly over the, the, the PA that song is playing right now for the Jesus as he's walking away or walking and, and dancing backwards. And you're like, you're like, oh, this, and I didn't notice it. It took me a while to realize. I'm like, oh yeah, Hotel California is Eagles. Like that is, that is, yes, and that's yeah. the song that's being played. I'm, yep. like, I'm like, oh, okay. And then like the dude hates the Eagles. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually, one of one he, of the members of the Eagles actually I can't remember who it was but approached Jeff Bridges at a party apparently and was like why why did you guys do this like it was such a point <laughs> of like insult to him that it, that 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 was said in the movie uh, that he was very very upset about it oh it's great though too which I mean what song is uh, playing in the cab when he has that that uh, that flip out when he yells at the cabbie that he hates the fucking eagles i hate the fucking eagles man it's peaceful easy feeling which is like such a like you know like california gold am kind of you know like hippie song of just like chill out man like peaceful peaceful easy feeling and he's just like i fucking hate this and then the the cabbie rips him out of the car screaming and everything just gets so aggro for a moment but yeah it's uh there's so many like triple entendres on on every level right and this is a this is a lot of the brilliance i think of uh, t-bone burnett coming in as yes. well who is there mm-hmm. what what is he referred to in this the musical archivist i believe because i know he did not want the term supervisor right he didn't want because he he hated the notion of being a supervisor this is a quote from him i wouldn't want anyone to think of me as management yeah music archivist was the term that he huh. got but uh they brought they bring him in as a uh, kind of like quiet secret weapon to give them their best soundtracks um this is the first one that he worked on that uh worked with the coen brothers on uh but then you know would follow it up with the grammy winning oh brother where art thou right um and then he did a lot of the gospel music that is all the way throughout lady killers of course he came back for inside lewin davis and then ballad of buster scruggs but yeah he's a guy who like just has this insane knowledge of music through all time and can kind of pull these brilliant tracks out of uh, out of nowhere i mean you know the the use of the man in me uh that unlocks the whole meaning of the film that's the opening song and it's it's a like dylan i don't even want to say b-side like c-side it's from a forgotten album uh and not one that you know usually people ever spotlight but it, it for one it got me into dylan it, like got me into like kind of the deeper cut dylans and i think that's like what True. what this soundtrack did and what like t-bone burnett's so good at is like building song uh, in a soundtrack of songs that sound familiar and work so well into the plot but like you probably didn't know and then now like opening up a whole world of other music to you um and yeah i i love i love everything that they're doing on this movie uh when it comes to music and just and what they're saying about music on top of it too you know just <laughs> the the uh that they're you know both using the eagles music and commenting on it at the same time is fucking awesome did you guys and, and read speaking, that whole story about it too? About like how how that like unlocked them getting a different song on the soundtrack? Oh, was it was it uh, was it the Rolling Stones song that they? Yes, that they... it's it's the the uh, manager for the Rolling Stones, Alan Klein. He a former manager of theirs. He owned the rights to the song, and it's That's the right. Towns Van Zant cover of the song that they wanted to use over the the ending of the movie. Which again, another I had never heard of Towns Van Zant until I heard, saw this movie. And this soundtrack was in heavy rotation for me. And I, I got super into Towns Van Sant and kind of always have been since. 
Uh, but that manager, Alan Klein, he wanted $150,000 for the rights to the song. Um, T-Bone Burnett was like, just watch an early cut of the film. I think you're going to like it. Like, I think it's going to be okay. And he, and this is from uh, T-Bone. He said, I got to the part where the dude says, I fucking, <laughs> I hate the fucking Eagles, man. Alan Klein stands up and says, that's it. You can have the song. That was beautiful. And just, <laughs> that was it for him. So yeah, like, <laughs> <laughs> like not only it's like that metatextual level of it, like the song unlocked another song for them and they all just play into each other so well and just, I don't know, create such a perfect tapestry. And then of course, That's you know, amazing. the Eagles are like such an LA band too. So they like it's, it makes sense that it would be part of the tapestry. Like it would be part of this world, this like stoner, you know, burnout people from that generation. 100%. I also, what are the other contributions or potential contributions that T-Bone Burnett might've made to the movie is that the, the version of uh, Viva Las Vegas, that's heard throughout the movie but specifically in bunny's car when she's driving oh sure um uh, uh apparently that was a a cover that he did but they named the band uh big johnson um <laughs> that uh that he wow. didn't take credit for it and so but that yeah that version of the song is most likely recorded by by t-bone big johnson that's cool and i love that she is playing it on repeat and you think that she was just hanging out in vegas for the weekend or whatever right but she was yeah. in palm springs which yeah. is something yeah. i like figured out way later which is to go yeah she was in vegas she was in vegas and then i like actually caught that line like oh no she was just listening to viva las vegas on repeat and despite listening to it over and over again never quite learning the words to it either yep <laughs> she's still kind of doing the like ah, bah, 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 like through half of them <laughs> so what are your guys's favorite song in the movie though since we're on this this tip of uh songs is there one that you connect with or that you love yeah i'll tell you the one that has stuck with me the longest was just dropped in uh it's the it's probably the most memorable needle drop in the movie or sort of like the big obvious music moment but um but the, oh, it's, I, all it, i can say to that is yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, it rules. I, I totally it's so agree. good. It's, it's, it's so good. Yeah. And that whole that whole sequence is amazing. Yeah. You, you didn't know that Kenny Rogers could fucking rock, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. You think you know, he's the gambler. But did you know that he could fucking rock and roll? <laughs> <laughs> fucking Kenny Rogers. You're right about the Dylan song, though, too, that, that you know, the man in me uh, is another one that like is just is such an incredible song. But, but definitely one I wouldn't have known about. That's the thing. It's like, and I feel like that's a, a thing with a lot of Coen Brothers films as well. Like, like they're very good at curating source music, um, you know, his, like from from different parts of history or different genres and that kind of thing. But when you when they appear in a Coen Brothers film, they become iconic in a way that maybe they never were before. In fact, their sweet spot is playing for you a song that you haven't like certainly haven't heard on the radio, but possibly haven't heard at all and you know it yeah it, and it feels organic like it, it's part of the movie it's you know it's it's like it's it's part of this experience and uh you know it it would be embarrassing if somebody were to use it as a needle drop in another movie after it's already been yeah you know done oh, by yeah. the cohen's you, like it's it's so you yeah. can't touch any of the songs in this no, movie that's no, that's a locked. great point it's like yeah. if yeah, you tried yeah. to put yeah the man and me and something else you would immediately think that it is a reference to the Bigelowski. that like they're right. Be you know yeah. of course because they use it a couple times in the movie for a dream sequence and to open it but you know it is like so perfectly for for the feel of the scene and everything but then again you know it is so much about what the film is about it's about finding the like when you cut away all the bullshit of who these people really are they're all these kind of like scared masks you know that they've put right. on and like all these years of bullshit that they've surrounded themselves in you know uh, Walter always 
postulating and yelling about the Vietnam War and, you know, the his friends who died face down in the mud. But <laughs> he's just a scared guy who wants a hug, you know, when you find yeah. him when he breaks down yeah. crying in the in at Donnie's funeral and he just like collapses into the dude's hug. Like that's all he wanted the entire time. And it was all just him putting on all this big show. Or the big Lebowski himself who pretends that he is this like captain of industry and he's built himself up, pulled himself up from his bootstraps. But then you find out the guy's on an allowance from his daughter because his wife who made all their money died and couldn't trust him to not, you know, piss away all their money. So the daughter has to take care of him. And he's like as big of a loser as, as he tries to tell the dude that he is, is, you know, everybody is is a lie of who they say they are. Right. And you know, it's getting down to who the man, in me is and like finding that and pulling that out of you like it's it's that's brilliant i love it's, that it's, that's it's amazing like such a such a cool little like you know extra level of interpretation it is oh absolutely but but and w- one last thing on the on the soundtrack is that they're they're pulling in songs and music to pair with each character to create like a audio signature that that goes along with, right, with each yes. person and so each of those you know the credence i mean like you you hear credence when the dude is driving around in his car and that sort of creates it yeah I lo- that, that so that's another pick yeah is um yeah is looking out my back door and he's yeah He's, he's pounding on the ceiling of his car when listening to yes. it. It comes right after the moment where the doctor's telling him to drop his shorts. So it's literally going from the doctor looking in his back door to uh, Credence looking out my back door, which is a brilliant cut. <laughs> <laughs> and then he's, yeah, he cuts to him and he's just like back in like stoner mode where he's he's burned one down. He's like, he's pepping himself back up and he's trying to forget about the thing that just happened. <laughs> that That might be the best little sequence of like all the joke funny sequences like just where he's burning one he's hitting the roof and then he immediately like is trying to get away from the car that's been following him he crashes the car like in the most <laughs> oh, ridiculous right. way possible like yes. hits the dumpster and goes like lifts off the ground yeah. and then with his sunglasses on like you know cockeyed he tries to get out the door he goes the other way and that's when he finds the the note under the seat that's when he finds little Larry Sellers uh, right. uh, history report yes. yeah and then goes and chases him to his house but like that just how they're able to make you to give you the information because they could have just like he could have sat in the car and pulled out that note like there's a lot of things but instead like they have this intricate like mousetrap for him to get caught in yeah dropping the joint in his lap trying to (laughs) pour a beer on it and then crashing and then finding the note like it's it's (laughs) that's that's the genius of the coen brothers and that's them as puppet masters just like ruining their characters lives right definitely it's so pitch perfect it's it's like almost like buster keaton in a way like the 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 craziness and the zanity yeah. or the zaniness that happens with that scene when he when he pulls the beer up into the into the shot you're like oh he's smoking and he's drinking <laughs> like, like, like like and then he tries to toss the joint out of the window and makes this weasel-esque squeal where when it hits yeah. his lap yeah. <laughs> and then just the cutaway that he does such a full turn like like and it's like just like 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 a full turn and just crashes right into something he so easily could have avoided. Yeah. It's so insane how it happens. Because he doesn't veer off the road. He turns fully and crashes yes. to the side. And it, it, it it's perfectly lined up with the frame of the camera, obviously. But it just looks so insane. And you're right. That might be the like the best little portion of comedy in, in the movie. And also, you are also right about that, that music drop there. Because that is probably one of the most like locked in my head version of that yeah. because after watching this a few times credence became synonymous with the dude in my brain where i was just like oh yeah the dude likes credence like this 
this is like well, his, he wants to get his, his credence brain. tapes back yeah. when his car when it's like there's like a radio got some credence tapes and they're like we'll probably find the car like never gonna find those credence tapes and then when he does get the car back he's like hey and the credence yeah. <laughs> like, oh. right. just a little silver lining for him that like yeah. everybody else would be incredibly pissed off he's like i'm i'm a little bit happier now because of that yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's interesting how how that sequence parallels um, the the earlier sequence of the the bag drop, um, and which is also uh, credence, right? That's that's when they're playing Run Through the Jungle, Run Through the uh, Jungle, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah. but but that, but similar kind of progression of small small little moments that lead up to these big like laughs and kind of more more action kind of moments, like uh, with with like in both really with a car crash, both ending with a car <laughs> crash. But that the, the other run that I love is yeah that all. The business in the car um, went leading up to the the handoff when um, the, the the presentation of the ringer, which is filled with Walter's undies, um, the the dude trying <laughs> the to whites. talk the, the whites, <laughs> um, but dude trying uh. to talk on the phone to the to the supposed kidnappers, um, immediately giving away that there's two people instead of one, and and yeah. Walter's reaction to that, dude, are you fucking this up? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like says everything about their dynamic, uh, yeah. but it makes me laugh every single time. But then that Walter has—I mean, it's so over the top, but it's—it it, it works. Like Walter's had this whole plan in his mind all along, unbeknownst to anybody else involved in this situation, where he's got an Uzi and he's gonna roll out of yeah. the car and all the things that <laughs> wrapped in cardboard. Yeah, exactly. But then in classic Cohen style, like you know, they set up something like that, and then the the plan immediately doesn't go uh, according to plan. Like there's. A yeah monkey wrench in it uh walter loses the gun the gun goes off shoots the tires out of the car the car crashes like it's just oh man a brilliant run of just like little details kind of all adding up to a big moment and they do this over and over again throughout this movie and, and really all of their films it's it's amazing to, to watch them land a sequence like that well because walter thinks he's an action star and really he's <laughs> yeah. just a sad yeah. man oh, and like absolutely. rolls rolls out of the car Never and like literally drops the machine gun yeah he's, he's right away he's never in no that's... shape to be doing it you know like like in the first place um yeah and that was an interesting thing that uh goodman was talking about did you guys watch that 20th uh anniversary interview that they did it i was did the not one know they were they were all sitting around a table at i think the smokehouse up in burbank hmm. uh it was like on like cbs sunday morning or something that you know that this kind of 30 minute interview with with um Lebowski himself, Jeff Bridges, uh, John Goodman and Steve Buscemi. Um, and Goodman was talking about how he thought that maybe Walter didn't really serve that. Maybe if he did, if he did, he wasn't really in the action. He wasn't in combat. But he's, he, yeah. Yeah. Like he wasn't really in combat. Like he was, you know, support staff or whatever. Or he right. or he never was actually deployed. But he was thinking that like that was kind of like in the back of his mind with like how he played the character was like, maybe Walter never really went to Vietnam. Uh, Cause at least like of the, the, um, vets that he knew and the vets that he had talked to about the role, like really none of them ever wanted to talk about it. Like weren't as like, you know, didn't bring up Vietnam all the time. Like they had to be like, you know, kind of like goaded into it or talking about it. But usually these people are, you know, bottling those feelings. So why is he always bringing it up? It's like, it's posturing and it's again, like this is, 
this is the whole thing of like the you know the masculinity you're trying to project but really the you know scared little boy that you are and yeah. walter is kind of the the greatest version of that and just goodman i believe that 100 percent. Yeah. yeah i had read an article or like uh, you know like about this that potentially in an original version of the script there might have been a line at the end of the movie after they spread donnie's ashes that the dude said you weren't even in vietnam that that oh, might shit. have <laughs> been oh have been wow. cut like and then in the final snap where like where he's kind of putting up with his bullshit the rest of the time and just telling him to shut up but this time he's like he's like you weren't even in vietnam and wow whether that's true or not like supposedly it was cut from the script the other thing that was supposedly cut from the script is the rubik's cube uh yeah i was, I was thinking the same thing yeah like that they what, made what was uh, the rubik's cube well th so that the coens made a deliberate choice to withhold the uh backstory for the dude um where like where his money came from or how how he's been able to survive for so long uh without a job and it but was... i mean you guys have lived in la long enough don't you know like 20 people who are able to somehow exist in la without a job or seemingly sure. anything to do like yes. that's i mean i've known so many people like that yeah, yeah inheritance or or some some so, like you know some personal wealth they've they've amassed did some, one some commercial a couple yeah, years back right, and exactly. got the buyout yeah and have just been living off that definitely and so the the dude was um the, the backstory was that he was um, an inheritant of the um, Rubik's Cube heir. Uh, and, and so he had <laughs> Rubik's Cube money um, that kept him afloat for a long time um, and then has obviously run out or is in is at the very end of the the uh, you know amount of money that it was. Oh, that's interesting. You know how I was talking about how their movies like rhyme with one another? Like the artist yep. necessarily is much like you know, mirror images, but everything's circular and everything comes back around. And in that way, it's like they have these circular rhymes where no country for old men is very similar to the style and things that happen within the plot of raising Arizona. Mm. This is so similar to, I mean, that aspect of it is very similar to Hudsucker Proxy because right. one yep. is Tim Robbins creating throughout yes. that the hula hoop. And yeah. here's another yeah. childhood novel novelty that is like built this man's career right. and also like, you know, destroyed the the uh, the like next generation because he's just going to live off of that. And like, what are you going to do? I mean, you're not going to like create a better Rubik's Cube, right? <laughs> I mean, there's not it's kind of you invented this one toy and then that's just yeah, it just hopefully keeps making him money so he doesn't ever have to do anything again, I guess. Uh, but yeah, there's not like, I can't imagine you're adding anything new to the Rubik's Cube <laughs> right. community anytime, right. you know? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but then they decided just to keep that all unknown that, that, that the dude is just this weird aimless creature that like, yeah. again, like so many people of us know those people who like exist in LA were like, don't know how you have your money, but you have, you have it nonetheless. Right. And right. you, you have survived, and made a weird life for yourself and, yeah. and almost doing no job for like six years. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. In a place that's very expensive. I mean, we all live in LA, yes. so we know just like what, what kind of sacrifices, you know, most people have to make just to even live here and it's expensive. You sink fast. Like that's, that's definitely the, the nature of it. Um, but uh, yeah, God bless you. If you can have that, that kind of lifestyle. And I think that's the thing that, you know, people glom onto that the, um, that, that you can, I mean, it's, 
kind of a fantasy, I guess, right? Especially if you're having a, you know, a, a week where you're just exhausted from work and, it's, and you think like, man, you know, it'd be nice to just like kind of fuck off for a while and not, and not have yeah. anything to do. Um, it's So there's some level of wish fulfillment there. But, um, you know, we talked about this earlier about, you know, it's it, it's the movie itself isn't trying to present that as as a thing that you would want, even though some people end up doing yes. it. But yeah, Jeff Bridges himself has said like, yeah, it's like I was able to like access, you know, my my 60s and 70s experience and the drugs that I did and, and you know, living that way and that sort of thing. But like, you know. I was a little bit more creative than the dude and yes, basically yeah, was, was putting that. a fine point on it saying that like, no, the dude is like a super lazy person that you should not want to aspire to be. Yeah. And beyond the people, you know, who want to live that way and are trying to like, you know, live the dude lifestyle or, you know, who all the people who end up at the Lebowski fest every year and like who just at least want to, you know, live it for a day or a weekend or whatever the, uh, <laughs> the festival lasts. It's hilarious how many people claim that they are the inspiration for the dude. Because there are, you know, the the Coen brothers are taking a lot of inspiration from a lot of different places. This is so, so much based on their experiences in L.A. for a short period of time. Like when they were living out here and they were trying to, you know, make it and deal and deal with L.A. Like they took all of that in like a sponge and then tried to like make some sort of weird tapestry of like LA life from it. But yeah, there's all these guys who are, are very close, you know, inspirations, some lesser. So, but they all kind of like are coming out of the woodwork and always like, Oh no, 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 I'm the dude. (laughs) It seems like, but the, the main guy is Jeff Dowd who goes by the name, the dude. He's a, you know, political activist and film producer. He was the guy who helped them out when they were, they were trying to get funding for blood simple. Um, and he was also a member of the Seattle seven, which is a real real, thing. Yeah. Yeah, The dude didn't make that up. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Right. Jeff Dowd is, was actually, yeah, a political activist, you know, uh, who participated in that. Um, um, but there was also when I was at USC, there was a professor named Peter Xline who also was like, I was friends with the Coen brothers. They based the dude more on me. <laughs> like they took the dude's name and like kind of like the laziness from this guy. But like really a lot of his mannerisms, the ways he talks and everything, it's more like me. And then there's, you know, of course, uh, this other guy who was a friend of John Milius, who is the actual inspiration for Walter. Right. But this other guy called himself the dude as well and he's saying that he's the dude so i don't know it just just like the movie is about a you know confusion of of uh of identity there are all these guys who are trying to claim they're the dude <laughs> in real life as well i don't know it's just this is such a weird metatextual movie that like i don't it just somehow like seeps into the real world too often it does i mean they use like you said they use a lot of the real world and x-line yeah. even takes credit for it, it ties the room to it really ties the room together right apparently apparently according to him he oh, like sure, said right. that yeah. line to him uh, to them about a rug and he said it a lot to them yeah. because whether he was drunk or whatnot but it just like came out of his mouth a lot one night and so they were like we're gonna use this or he said that that's what happened who, who really knows but right. also do yourself a favor and because not only was john milius's friend an inspiration for walter and for the dude but look at a picture of john milius yeah. oh yeah john milius oh, right right, the, right, right, right. The, like yeah. visual walter. yeah the appearance yeah. is is right on the money with the vest and the the, 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 the chin tight strap beard. yeah the chin strap beard and mm-hmm. And all that. Yeah. 
Um, and he's also he's also more of a right wing dude. Loves his gun. Yeah, I was gonna like, say he's known uh, to have a pistol on him. Yeah, at, at any given time, yeah. and uh, might show you that pistol. Yeah, wrote Quint's USS Indianapolis speech right. for Jaws. Jaws is yeah. kind of like yeah. you know maybe maybe uh, also made a ton of movies himself, including yeah. Red Dawn, it, which it, is Red Dawn, you know, yeah, yeah. But insane. Also Big and Wednesday. taught at USC for years and years, and you know mentored a lot of young and upcoming filmmakers. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Apocalypse, also Apocalypse Now. Yeah. Yeah, like, wrote, wrote like now. Yeah. whether how much of that script was used in the end is debatable, but he wrote the original script for Apocalypse right. Now and and Conan the Barbarian. Yeah, oh, so yeah. Yes. Uh, he did a movie called Big Wednesday, which is about surfers in Malibu, and that that had a lot of DNA with Big yeah, Lebowski, yeah, um, and especially the the backstory of some of these characters. Um, yeah, interesting guy. You know, Milius was um, when like Lucas and Spielberg and, and those guys were all friends hanging out. Milius was part of that group, um, and he was like their big brother and protector like he was the bully that could you know kind of um give them some some protection against you know whether it be like studio heads or or nerds yeah exactly right exactly but that they um were all friends and that obviously milius realized that the talent going on in that group of friends was was just absolutely next level uh would change the course of Hollywood and all that stuff. So um, pretty, pretty amazing. Um, going back to Jeff Dowd, Dowd was the one who would drink white Russians. Um, if, yes. If, if the story is oh, correct. Okay. And so that's where mm-hmm. white, white Russians get into the mix. And I was going to make a white Russian for recording this tonight, but I realized like right before that I didn't have any of the things to make it uh, that, I, <laughs> that I thought I did. I thought I had some, uh, I definitely have Kahlua, but I didn't have any vodka. Um, but I also thought I had some oat milk in the in the fridge and and uh that's that's gone as well so the white russian didn't happen for tonight but it made me think about white russians and a period in my life where i was actually drinking white russians because of this movie um but also oh, yeah. because it's a simple enough you know like cocktail to make that i was able to make them at home this was when i was in college and and yeah i would you know, like get the milk and the vodka and like and like actually make these um the point where I it was probably the last white Russian I ever drank was um, I was we were having a party in in college and it was like a Halloween party and um, and somebody came dressed as the dude and I was like oh man I got just the thing for this kid and uh, started making him white Russians and long story short um, he drank probably three white Russians in a row and then ended up wearing those white Russians about fifteen minutes later he's uh, <laughs> like. I was like, what happened to the dude? And then I look across the living room and he's sitting on the couch and uh, yeah, those, those white Russians were coming back up. So it was, uh, it was gnarly. Yeah. I was like, okay, I think that's the end of milk, milk based cocktails for me. You Um, can only, you can only really do one in a night because if you, if you push your limits on it, exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. That's, you can't, you can't do it. There, there was a, uh, the, the movie theater at the Grove in Los Angeles, which is now closed um, uh, um, because it was part of the Arclight family. I can't remember what was the actual Pacific Pacific that's right Pacific yeah, theaters, Pacific theaters. Um, they, they had a cocktail there called the dude uh, and it was a like coffee based vodka cocktail with a little bit of like thin cream that they put on the top so you could actually have like two of them and not feel terrible because there was so much less cream sure. in the actual cocktail itself and it was really good um R.I.P. that movie theater because I that was one of the ones I frequented a lot. But I, I think I've had a dude cocktail more times than I care to admit. Nah. At, at that <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, I can't think of any place that does. Uh, you know, most people are not fucking around with milk these days in general. So right. I think uh, they've yeah. kind of, you know, fallen by the wayside a little bit. But 
I'd, I'd like to see him make a comeback. I could go for one, you know, <laughs> it's been a while. I, I used the same, same with me, Matt. I used to drink them a lot in college as well. Um, it would get a, a carton of milk and uh, pour out about half of it and then fill it back up with vodka and uh, <laughs> oh uh, and just like shake nice. it up and carry that thing around. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah <laughs> I haven't done it since then. Um, also, yeah, I, I don't know if it, if it made me lactose intolerant or I just was becoming lactose intolerant anyways. But yeah, there's, there's a point at which I was like, Oh, I can't do this anymore. This is going to kill me. Um, but yeah, it's such a weird, such a weird drink to, uh, to glom onto. And then of course, you know, put in the movie and then make like a whole thing. Cause not that many movies have a drink, you know, right. No. Like a, a signature style and also like a drink to go with it. That's like, per- like I'm trying to think of another one that has a, a, an iconic drink. That you think of they're pretty up, i mean right? co- does cocktail have a specific cocktail in it no there's all kinds of cocktails it's yeah. more about making the cocktails <laughs> right. than it is yeah it's true throw, them, the, you know? throw the bottles behind your back yeah 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 you got to kind of go a little bit it's it's not like something that's usually throughout the movie there'll be like a specific cocktail listed in a movie or talked about in a movie for a scene like, yeah, uh, I mean, like the bond, giant punch bowl you know? yeah, in yeah. Uh, wayne's world or anything like that but there's not one like this that is like kind of part of the movie's like DNA. Right. Like where, oh. it, where it's, where, where it exists throughout the entire yeah. thing. Although Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar has a really great cocktail uh, fishball sequence <laughs> yes. in there that I it thought does. was really, really funny. Oh, I don't know if you guys part. have seen that, but yeah. that movie is way better than I thought it was going to be. Oh, okay, honestly. good. I'm glad we it's all great. like it. I just oh, saw great. it this weekend and it's really oh, really? funny. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, great, great. Yeah, I just I just saw it and it's it's a uh, total delight on the level it of is. like Step Brothers stupid goofiness. Yeah. Uh, but it, yeah, it, takes no. a, it goes a level above that. It is insanity. Yeah. Oh, it's obviously, yeah, 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 yeah. Much more of a sketch movie, more more of a... Uh, Austin Powers movie. Was yeah, that's what I, I thought. I was yeah. like, I bet Matt likes this because this is Austin Powers. Yeah, the, <laughs> certainly like the villain of that movie and the stuff going on behind the scenes is very firmly planted at Austin Powers. Yes, um, for sure. Yes. There's actually probably a few things in there that have some, some in, something in common with Big Lebowski too. Um, like just, just oh yeah. In terms I mean, of any like, good comedy, yeah, should, well, should sure. have a little, yeah, exactly. a little Lebowski in it, right? I yeah. mean, they're, they're. I mean, to be fair, they are two idiots uh, from like <laughs> from like the Midwest coming out to like. Where are they? In, where are they? In, in, where is Vista in, in Del Mar? Florida. Is it Florida supposed to yeah. be? Yeah, and like just experiencing like weird uh, people that they like they encounter. Like it, it, it is like a very much so hang encounter movie as well. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I I could see that. It just their hang is a lot weirder. <laughs> it's it's very yes. specific, very specific to their sense of humor and and all that. Which which you know, Coen Brothers like that's their bag too. Like you know, yeah. they they dance to their own beat, but their beat is something that is just so special, like so perfectly curated. They they have something in mind that they're going for, and they know how to get it. And it and yeah, it's it's amazing. Like what, just how fully formed their um you know, their style and, and sensibility is by the time they they got to you know Fargo and 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 really even like raising Arizona, which we'll get to next episode. But like they came out yeah. of the gate ready to go as auteurs and um have continued to find things that are interesting to them and then obviously interesting to us as well. Yeah, for for many years, it's kind of amazing. Because I think it would have been, you know, it's it's something that uh, obviously they're this movie must have been really hard to pitch to explain to people to actually give them an idea of what they're doing. Because like, yeah, it riffs on the Maltese Falcon and Double Indemnity and mm-hmm. Murder My Sweet and takes so much from the big sleep. Yeah. You know, a lot of the actual like bones of the of the plot are, are um 
the big sleep. But it's also, you know, it's like a logical 1990s extension of what Robert Altman was doing in the 70s with with mm-hmm. uh, the long goodbye. Yeah. But like you can't necessarily like you can see the DNA of the long goodbye, but it's not it's not a uh, like remake by any means. It's not like, no. you know, their version of it necessarily. It's its own distinct weird thing that really they like, I don't know. I just, I can imagine like it's a detective movie, but he's not a detective. Like it's, it's a bowling movie, but like that doesn't really matter. And there's no stakes to the bowling. Yeah, no, there's, there's not, even the dude there's, himself doesn't, you never see him bowling. Uh, it, correct. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He actually never throws a ball. Right. right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. During the entire movie, which, yeah, but it's just, such an interesting like how do you how do you go and get money for this movie and i mean luckily they were coming off of fargo right uh they were trying to set this up after hudsucker yeah they had written this in in their early 90s around the time that they were writing barton fink and part of the writing process is getting down like half of a screenplay or writing an idea out to a point where they just get stuck and then abandoning it for a couple months writing something else and then coming back to it later so that was in this cycle where they were trying to write uh, hudsucker proxy got majorly stuck halfway through writing that wrote Barton Fink in like three weeks and then uh, somewhere in there also started putting this the ideas got for this like together 40 pages in yeah exactly yeah and, and then, then they were like I don't know where we go with this yep. and like yeah knocked out so that's like a turducken of great scripts right there like yeah it's, it's right. <laughs> you know uh, Barton Fink inside of Big Lebowski inside of Hudsucker Proxy all you know sort of working at the same time and I'm sure Fargo was somewhere in there as well like it's something that they were you know putting together figuring out and and getting those ideas down in that in that yes. period as well. That's how Goodman is so similar in the two movies of Barton Fink and and right. uh, Big Lebowski right. is that they were writing these kind of characters that really harnessed his rage. You know the like things that boiled up when you really like put him in pressure and what he does so well and like the explosive nature of his acting. Which I mean he is just one of the greatest. Which for such a sweet man he can really scare the shit out of you <laughs> as well. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean you were talking about like sort of how they get to to pitch or get to sort of make these movies and they got lucky early on where um they made contacts with people with money that could sort of open the the doors to to their productions uh you know people that understood how good they you know they are and what their potential was and so they had those people in their corner um you know production companies a bunch of dentists yeah well the, the dentist is what got them, them going <laughs> yeah no i know they made just funny that like right you, but you can see that context. yeah they figured that out exactly. you know like they figured it out on their first one they got a bunch of they went through a book of uh, the richest jewish people in minnesota and and found all of these you know jewish dentists who had a bunch of money and got them to give them little bits to put together blood simple and then they kind of figured out like how important that kind of part of finding the right people with the right money to let you make the decisions and trust you right to make the decisions right like who are like we'll give you this much and they make modest films for the most part they're like mid-budget they don't really that's the secret they don't spend a lot they don't get too big for their britches and try to make a you know 50 million 60 million dollar movie ever like it's always yeah, even you know, so Hudsucker Proxy was their big studio outing, and that was a $25 million budget that I think Warner Brothers put up. And um, Joel Silver, of all people, uh, you know, was was the, sort of their producer backing them and, and really trying to right. help them get um, a, a bigger so movie weird. made. And yeah, it's, a, you know, interesting connection. But that was that's the thing that they've 
you know, always pushed back on and, and, and maintained was that they'll do it for the budget that they can get away with where they're not going to be interfered with. Like they are yes. very anti-interference and rightfully so. I mean, they've proven, yeah, like you said, they've proven themselves. They've earned trust. They've showed that they have the ability to make things that are not just good and, and um, you know, good for the time that they come out, but that will last a long time, which is how some of these auteur directors mm-hmm. who, um, you know, maybe aren't making like the biggest blockbuster of the summer but they'll still be able to command a hundred million dollar budget like scorsese or tarantino tarantino is obviously now a, a huge box office draw but that they know that these movies are going to last 20 30 40 50 years 100 years maybe like that that they're, they're, these are um, filmmakers that are capable of making classics that uh, make lots of money over time with um, tv rights and dvd and blu-ray and all that stuff so like the yeah the coen brothers have you know like really sort of found that that area that area where they can play and, and get to do whatever they want um but a lot of what you know like yeah. like fargo and lebowski were came out of um doing the hudsucker proxy and spending you know the the modest 25 million that was their biggest movie to date by a long shot um and taking a big squ- swing with with studio money and basically saying you know what like we need to step back a little bit and and get back to the things that we're good at. And that and Fargo yeah. and, and Big Lebowski came out of that. They were actually going to do Big Lebowski first, um, but uh, right. John Goodman was still on Roseanne, and Jeff Bridges uh, was doing Wild Bill with um, Walter Hill. Walter so, Hill, yeah. So they yeah. so they weren't available like in the, the 94, 95 time frame that that they were originally trying to get this movie made. Um, they pivoted to Fargo, and um, and what a great bet that was for them like Fargo helped them recover from whatever you know like like the downfall was from uh, Hudsucker Proxy and just put them right back at the top of the pile um, as you know a box office draw a uh, awards contender and um, all around maker of classics which which Fargo certainly is and and um, and probably gave them a little bit more ability to make Big Lebowski untouched the way they wanted to that kind of thing like they had had their they had had their big hit and uh, now they got to make whatever they wanted and they chose the big Lebowski and and thank god they did yeah because if they you know and they stumbled on the big Lebowski again you know where it didn't connect at the time I'm not not that they stumbled in any of the creative process I mean obviously we're just sitting here gushing about it but it it didn't do well and if it had been a one-two punch of Hudsucker and Lebowski you know one after another I think they would have struggled to then make another you oh, know absolutely yeah absolutely uh that's that's super interesting yeah fargo saved their butts a little bit did, you know yeah. like i think that that was like a good because it's i i mean they are so again cagey and coy about anything you ask them but they are you know always kind of saying like we don't know why people didn't like hudsucker proxy like we don't know why people liked fargo we don't get it we just keep making the films we want to make and i think there is some there is a lot more calculation and and doing all of these things than more so than they'll ever admit to though the the narrative that Fargo was like entirely coming out of like we were screwed by the studio system and now here's our like you know pitch dark like fuck you back that Fargo was it's more they had already written it you know they just yeah, put I, a lot I, of that yeah, frustration yeah. into the movie necessarily right. but it's not like it's not a meta text on like fuck you Hollywood no not, not at all whatsoever yeah. that it that it like kind of gets cast as I right would say, exactly at times. but you know it's just it's it's such an interesting like happenstance that these movies connect or don't connect and then give keep giving them the uh 
the rope to do some other weird shit with, you know? Well, you know, it's funny there. I think if there was, if there was any recalibration after Hudsucker, it was something it had, had to do with the complexity of the plot of, of Hudsucker. Sure. Um, which, which is interesting going back to what you're saying about if, you know, Lebowski had followed it up, that would have been two movies in a row with these sort of, um, very over plotted, like hard to follow to a regular mainstream audience. I think that was one of the, one of the issues with Hudsucker is that, but the, uh, you know, it's like the, the plot itself, you know, people didn't understand it or it was it was too complicated that sort of thing um but how do you market these films <laughs> like that you know yeah, and i think you know like true. fargo kind of has its own built-in mystique it's you know a, it was allegedly based on a true story I, i'd have to imagine there was things there that um that that helped it and then word of mouth is is probably what what led that to just explode um but for something like right. lebowski which is just so specific it's like how do you how do you market that like what you know what were the trailers like? You know, I saw it in theaters and then I remember trying to tell my friends about it and being like, oh, it's like a bowling movie, but it's like also this mystery and they're trying to find this girl, <laughs> but that doesn't really matter. I don't know. And then he has these dream sequences that are fucking cool, man. Like you got to check them out. And I just remember like coming back. Yeah. And trying to tell my friends and like it was in theaters for a week. And so I'm like, they think I'm crazy that I'm making up some fucking movie that like, you know, oh, it's the great the big Lebowski. I don't know. Like you guys didn't see this. Like and just, yeah, just <laughs> Now, of course, you know, you get it because you've seen it or you you have some sort of knowledge of like what the dude is and what the vibe is. Right. But yeah, it's it's selling a vibe. It's exactly. Right? I mean, exactly. I think that's kind of a that's the thing. And that, you know, the we've talked about their world building and their kind of like specific worlds that they create within each movie. This one, the vibe is everything. Right. And the vibe is what people, I think, caught on to and then why they wanted to become the dude and live like the dude and all that shit. You, you kind of hit the nail on the head where it's like this is this is not a movie that's easy to describe the plot to somebody when you're trying to tell them what it's about in fact going down the rabbit hole or why it's good well that 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 in itself um but that like in the in the process of trying to describe it it gets more and more insane it creates the feeling of being stoned like just trying to like recall the 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 beats of this plot and probably to a person that you're you know hasn't seen this movie that you're trying to explain it to they would think you are stoned because it just sounds so ridiculous yeah. and and you're having a hard time remembering it and and it's like because if you think about it i mean it's like it took me a long time to really put the pieces together of like how things connected or i'd forget little things that that connect big things and and, and all that and it took watching it many many times to really get a grasp of how one scene leads to another and and uh and that sort of thing it's 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 really great in that like it's it's um subtly complex yeah it, it, it's a movie that does a really good job of making you feel like you understand it after you watch it but then when you have to describe it to somebody yeah. then it it's becomes like wait did i did i you, even you watch don't... that like did i understand yeah, like you don't <laughs> was i stoned too you don't have yeah. many lingering questions after you see it but it's when you have to like recall right. and describe where you're like wait okay well this happened here wait I, and then and then that happened there and you're like wait, okay okay let me think about this for a second it really it really is a weird like like you said before Matt like you're kind of high doing it like you're satisfied <laughs> yeah. with it's the putting experience you, yeah it's but like then putting you in the driver's seat of the dude or, or whatever just in the with the way that the film is is made and, and put together it's it's it, it, yeah if, if, if only they could make a, a roller coaster of the dude <laughs> uh, a, a big Lebowski ride somewhere where, where you just which you just crashing cars repeatedly over and over again <laughs> I, I bet you could do <laughs> something in the like 
uh, in in the dream in one of the dream sequences that would be oh, yeah. a lot of fun. Those dream sequences are so great. Uh, like they're they're fantastic. Yeah, and they and they come out of nowhere. They're they're stylistically different uh, from the movie. You know the way they shot them and and put them together and everything that they they really just kind of stand alone. But then they integrate all these details that are in the world building and and sort of on the periphery of this film. The subtext, the uh, Saddam Hussein, like like early nineties. Oh yeah. Okay. Wait. 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 Can we talk about Saddam Hussein? Can we (laughs) talk about this guy? Yeah. Uh, Jerry Haleva, I believe, is how you pronounce his name. Um, He has very few uh, credits on IMDb, uh, and in all of them. He is Saddam Hussein. I was going to say, is he Saddam Hussein in like every comedy in the in the yes, 90s? He is. Let's let's run him down. 91 Hot Shots. Right. 93 Hot Shots Part yep, 2. Exactly. 98 The Big Lebowski. <laughs> 98 Mafia. Right. Yeah. <laughs> 2002 The First 20 Million is Always the Hardest, where he actually played hologram Saddam. Oh, my God. And then also in 2002, Live from Baghdad, a TV movie. He played Saddam Hussein wow. as well. Wow. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. And what I never noticed until I was looking at this guy's IMDb page, he's also he he is in the uh, the bowling alley. OK, he's so the guy spraying, spraying the, the shoes. shoes. That's one of my favorite shots in the whole movie. He's moving from from one end of this row of shoes, spraying the, yes. you know, the disinfectant in each shoe. The camera's pushing in on him. It's just a beautiful shot in itself. Um, but, you know, having grown up in and around bowling alleys, like that's a very specific bowling alley detail that they were very like they, they knew bowling alleys like they knew they, they at least did their homework and, and got some of the minutia correct on on what those yes. those uh, bowling alleys were like. And that was that was one that just screamed but, so, so true to me. But then, like you were saying, then the dude incorporates that into the dream sequence because he yes. saw that guy and like, you know, logged in his brain somewhere right. and like got him, you know, just mixed up with Saddam Hussein, who's also seeing on TV and is probably hearing about, you know, for one of the first times now that it's Desert Storm and they're kind of like first putting these people forward. And he's just combining the two in his head. And now this man is the the man who gives him his shoes is Saddam Hussein. Right. It's just insane. And <laughs> like, I don't know. It just, I, I'm glad that this guy was able to make a whole career out of it too. Oh yeah. Um, he also has a great quote on his IMD, uh, IMDb uh, page that says, uh, I was in DC when I noticed two Russian cabbies were giggling. One said, I'm very sorry, but my friend and I think you look like somebody who is not very nice. And I said, it's okay. I play him in movies. His eyes widened and he said, you've played Joseph Stalin. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. so from so one, guy, uh, one terrible world leader to another. Yep. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, oh man. Yeah, he d- I didn't even realize he does the lightsaber battle with uh, with Lloyd Bridges, yes. Jeff's dad in Hot Shots Part Two. So yeah. he's he's got to hung, hang out with the whole Bridges family. That's the whole Bridges family. Oh, yeah, right. Of course. Of course. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> also, also going back on like the dream sequences, the one thing that I really liked is that they played on different motifs in this. They didn't do like the normal stoner things in this right. movie. It wasn't like Grateful Dead and Dayglow posters and things like that that you would think of from that that kind of uh, period. They were like, we're gonna do bowling alleys. We're gonna like harken back to like the 1950s and 60s. And 
And we're going to do a lot of conversation about being a stoner or about counterculture, but we're not going to show as many things. And one of the big like stylistic reference points that they use throughout the movie is the stars on the outside yes, of the bowling yeah. alley. And those are how those are incorporated into the dream because though, you know, it flashes out of the bowling alley at the one point in time and you see the stars still flashing in the blackness. And then the stars become the stars of the sky and Lebowski is flying above the city. And that, that, and they incorporate that later on in the other uh, dream sequence as well. There are stars seen throughout that. It's just this, these small details that they decide to pick up on and not use cliches uh, and step away from cliches uh, to, to really like sell their own, I like style and the world that they yeah. built. I think it's really, really intelligent how they do that. It's motifs and it's their like brilliance as conductors, you know, they're building symphonies and they're playing all of these notes. And I mean, Matt, you were bringing up that everybody has a sound or has a music right. choice that, you know, kind of introduces them with, you know, using the, the credence needle drops whenever you see the dude, like these are just the kind of like, they're, they're symphony makers. Like they're, yes. they're so brilliant yeah. with this kind of stuff that they can just bring all this around. Um, I think the saddest thing that I found out when I moved to LA that they had closed that bowling lane, that bowling alley right before I moved here. Uh, it was closed wow. in oh, 2002 really? and I moved in 2003. Uh, it was called the Hollywood star lanes. And it was, uh, I think on Santa Monica, uh, kind of the Hollywood area. Um, but yeah, it, the building was still there and we went by it. Cause at one point, um, Peter Exline, who at the time, you know, was a professor at USC, he took everybody bowling huh. and like told all of his Big Lebowski stories. And he had said the year before he had taken everybody to Hollywood Star Lanes. But now, of course, it was closed. I think we went to Shadow or one of those one of those kind of old places uh, okay. over over by USC. But I was looking up history on Hollywood Star Lanes because I, I, I was pretty sure it was closed. And I was trying to trying to find out if they'd ever put anything there. I think it's a parking lot still, which is sad. Um, but I found out that in 1977, the FBI staged the biggest raid it ever did on Scientology right next to the bowling alley. And they used the alley behind the bowling alley as the place where they staged and got ready for the raid. But this was like one of the oh, big wow. like tax, you know, uh, raids that they did on get all in the paperwork and everything on like all the bullshit that Scientology was pulling in the 70s. And it was that Hollywood star lanes. That's it's like two claims to fame. Big Lebowski and the alleyway it was used <laughs> for a FBI raid. Uh, I don't know. Just just uh, weird L.A history i i i like those random facts i like yeah we, I, we've talked about this one before because we think this is really funny but this is leading me to a random fact and alex i think you have more about it but um but the part later in the movie where they're going uh to uh trying to get the um the car back with the dude's money when they yes. go to uh, interrogate the young boy uh the little young man <laughs> little Larry Sellers and they and they you know um he screams a line uh John Goodman screams a line this is what happens when you fuck a stranger in the ass yes. but it was redubbed obviously on TV because you can't say fuck or ass on TV to be this is what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps said repeatedly uh I don't know if this is the inspiration of it but it is a very interesting thing that was pointed out is that Phoebe Bridger's uh album in 2017 was Stranger in the Alps yes so it, was. it, it may was, or may not right? be Named after oh, it was that line. Absolutely, it yeah. was. It was. It was. Phoebe's great. Yeah, I, I love Phoebe Bridgers. Uh, she's awesome. And yeah, that was named for that. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, John Goodman in that same 20th anniversary interview that they did said that uh, the when they went into loop all the fucks uh, in the movie that the loopers just told them like say whatever you want, like come up with a bunch of different things and we'll just try to match whatever works. And so he was just like riffing and came up with that find a stranger in the Alps. It has no meaning as nothing. That's just Goodman like off the dome yelling. Shit and trying to come up with different ones and he couldn't even remember what he 
what they settled on. He was like, oh man, we tried so many different ways of like flipping and, you know, flying and just threw out stuff. And that's the one that, that I guess just hit the cadence perfectly. But there was, yeah, there was no, no deeper meaning to it, which is so funny. And that they, they had no plan for it, that the looping people were just like, I don't know. Just make sure it doesn't say fuck or ass <laughs> and say something else. <laughs> well, but I, you know, I think that, amazing. that also, you know, has to go without saying that this is the, uh, supposedly according to Wikipedia, the 24th, uh, the, the movie 24th on the list of movies with the most use of the F word, right. 281 uses in 117 minutes. It's a rate of 2.4, uh, fucks per minute. Right? Yeah. Yes. And, wow. and that's higher than any Tarantino movie, including Reservoir Dogs and, and Pulp Fiction, yes. which are both pretty, pretty up there. Uh, amazingly, it's Scorsese who like really has like uh, several entries yeah. in this top 25. Um, and Un- Uncut Gems is number four, which is which is pretty amazing, too. Um, yep. That those safties just let him fly. Wow. I didn't realize it was that. Oh, it says fuck so much. He he says, but it's subtle. Yeah, it's just like it's part. I mean, it, you become He's, desensitized he says to it so too, Casually, yeah, it's it's in every sentence. Yeah, it's so right. casually said. It's not said with a lot of emphasis or right. guttural. Like fuck, it's like it's like this fucking yeah, guy. Yeah. Like yeah, he's ruining yeah, my fucking sure, day. Sure. Like it's like it just like it like lacks enthusiasm throughout it. It also has some other high counts of words being said in there. It says man. dude 160 times and it says cool. man 147 times. <laughs> so like it like it is like that is huge that there's like three words that are repeated that much yeah. that isn't the or something like right. that. Something just very banal and repeated well, throughout the English language. Again, what is this movie all about? masculinity yeah. so of course yep. man and dude, dude are these two terms these, you know effectual and like talking like trying to to break down kind of like men's intimate relationships with one another and friendships and how all this shit works like of course they're going to use these these terms like that of man and dude and like try to deconstruct what they even mean right or I don't know, man, that's just like your opinion. <laughs> uh, yeah, I wonder how many instances uh, include both those words in the same sentence, because I'm sure there's there's a few of those as well. Dude, uh, all right, yeah, man. Whenever yeah. he was trying to explain something, that was said at least four or five times when he was trying to figure out what the hell he was even talking about. <laughs> yeah, also, which is great, because it, the thing is, is those are not, uh, none of those are are improvised. Yeah, there's only one instance of improv in this whole movie. What's what's the one instance? Human paraquat yeah. is, mm-hmm. the, is the one. Which is something I never could figure out what that meant for so many years. Did you look up what it meant? Yeah, it's a it's a toxin, right? It was like something they sprayed yep. on plants right. to, to kill marijuana. They killed marijuana plants with it, and then people knew it got sprayed and would harvest it anyways, and then sell it, and then people got sick, and they called it killer weed. It didn't kill anybody, but it got people real sick. Mm, so it became okay. like a buzzkill. So that is basically saying you're a human buzzkill. Like, you just like, you <laughs> ruin the vibe okay, of any sure. situation. sure. But even down to the inflection of every man and dude in in the script is there like that. That was the only yes. instance of any sort of going off book or, or that kind of thing. And the, the Coens were OK with that. And it's also a movie in which people are talking over each other or near each other so consistently. Right. Like the bowling alleys with Donnie and uh, and uh, uh, <laughs> Donnie trying to get his voice in yeah. there a little bit. I am the walrus. And then the dude and Walter just walrus. screaming at each other. <laughs> I am the it, walrus. <laughs> <laughs> I am the walrus. <laughs> Donnie's having a midlife crisis, maybe. I don't oh, know. Poor Donnie. <laughs> Donnie yeah. Donnie's He's such like, a wonderful, pure soul. He, has, he just he asks so many what. questions. Yeah. And he never gets real answers to them. The dude barely even talks to him. No, he's he's, really he's so doesn't. desperate to make a connection with with 
anybody like period and there's one moment that that i absolutely love where uh walter and dude are fighting um dude walks off and walter looks at donnie to like he mouths something to him like and and uh, it's this little moment where walter and and donnie actually like have a connection and and donnie's reaction to it is amazing because he like goes along with what walter's saying like he appreciates that he's finally like having like a positive interaction with walter even though it's walter like mocking the dude or whatever um but it's just this, yeah, it's this sure. one little moment where like the two share and then of course it's all uh, it's right back to shut the fuck up donnie um, yeah <laughs> out of your element <laughs> yeah that's the th- that was another you know weird internet uh rumor or theory or hypothesis whatever you want to call it of people thinking that donnie didn't exist that that you know donnie is a figment of walter's uh you know <laughs> imagination and because the only time that that the dude actually addresses him is in the uh, uh, when he says like you know phone your phone's ringing dude and he goes like thank you Don yeah that's true and that's it that's and it's like almost like they yeah. they could play it off of well you know was he just humoring Walter in that moment and not actually really talking and oh, interacting that's with Donnie. Like, yeah. is that still just to Walter? It's very I, I don't think that's sense. necessarily yeah, the case. Like- I think it's just, yeah, I think it's just Walter is friends with Donnie and it, like, I think Walter's the center, right? You know, I think the dude is friends with Walter and Donnie is friends with Walter, but the dude and Donnie aren't necessarily friends. Right. Right. I mean, I think that's kind of I, I feel like Donnie, maybe Donnie and Walter met each other in some sort of support group at some point that like, you know, neither of them probably attends anymore. <laughs> Walter definitely doesn't because he he's obviously a raw nerve constantly and needs a lot more uh, help. And <laughs> he's, he's off the reservation. I just love yeah. that uh, Donnie asking the dude, he's like, he's like those Nazis. That, he's like, he's like, dude, those Nazis. He's like, yeah. no, they're nihilists. <laughs> they don't believe in anything. <laughs> <laughs> which all all those interactions are so good which we haven't touched we haven't touched on the nihilist really but like all of them is is fantastic like they're all fantastic like flea is amazing the the fact that there are like they are they had like a band named autobahn and which was like a reference to like craft work like their album covers and their style of music it's just this weird weird thing that like i just love so much and like their general style throughout the movie when they break in to the dude's apartment and they're wearing their all black uniforms and they have a ferret with them that they call what do they call it it's incorrect they call it like a a marmot Marmot. uh, a marmot uh they also call the dog by the wrong type of dog yeah right it's Uh, not a pomeranian (laughs) yeah it's a terrier not a pomeranian (laughs) but but just having that ferret and their and their outfits like just their pure black outfits like they look like they're gonna go scuba diving or something like it's just it's so amazing everything that they do and it's also uh, Peter Stormare. They just do one great Fargo reference in the movie, which in which they reveal that Bunny's toe doesn't actually come from Bunny. It comes from the girlfriend of, of the group. Played by Amy Mann. Played by Amy Mann. But uh, that they that it's her toe that was used. But prior to the, uh, the revelation that, that it's her toe, they all order pancakes. And what is uh, Peter Stormare's character in Fargo really yeah, want? Right. He wants pancakes. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they they have little interesting kind of like call outs to their movies. Like, you know, the the VW bug that John Polito's Defino drives. Yep. That's the same as uh, Blood Simple, the one that uh, Visser mm-hmm. drives. Um, yeah, it's like there's like and, a, a shot, like the exact same shot that they use in, yeah. in, in Blood Simple. 
And then the um, I just rewatched True Grit, uh, the Undertaker scene in True Grit, where, you know, uh, little Maddie is deciding, you know, trying to get her dad's remains and make a deal with the Undertaker. It's very similar in kind of the coldness of the Undertaker with the Donnie's ashes scene where they're trying to decide, you know, if oh, they can just take his ashes away in the the coffee can. It's just again, it's like it rhyme, the scenes rhyme with one another. Yeah. They're just another spin on that and like kind of taking the comedy out of this very 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 dark and sad situation right, right? yeah even the um do you see what happens larry comes from like do you see what happens jeffrey at the beginning of the movie that the uh the two thugs when they're when they're in his uh, apartment at the very beginning oh yeah they yeah, say yeah, that yeah, line right. and then it comes back later there's so much of that yeah so much of that kind of repetition do you see what happens larry <laughs> yeah donnie has a heart attack in that in the end uh melee with the uh with the nihilists and it's the the realization that we got a man down here uh it's like donnie's been shot no there was no shots fired here uh, like walter yeah. walter it's like his uh, narrating all of the, the the details in that in that sequence always makes me laugh and still making them militaristic oh, absolutely. You know, slightly absolutely. just like man down yeah. like oh we'll get a medic in here real quick <laughs> yeah. like, yes yeah. instead of saying an ambulance he says right. medic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah it's so pitch perfect for him one of the high points of the movie is, is the whole eulogy scene and the ashes and the coffee can and, and that kind of thing um but that you're you're right about you know like walter gives the eulogy and so must have known a little bit about donnie's backstory and this is really where the only details you get about this guy are, are in the eulogy mm-hmm. um but the, the, yeah he uh loved the outdoor and bowling and as a surfer he explored the beaches of southern california from la jolla to leo carrillo and uh pismo it's <laughs> like that's such a great like uh, yeah. california joke <laughs> like if you get it like that's that's fucking hilarious yeah um and then of course he, he devolves into <laughs> and, uh, uh you know like yeah the vietnam stuff and uh, he died like so many other young men of his generation before his time and uh, all that it's stuff, just so. yeah it's the brilliance of the coen brothers and also you know i was reading or in that 20th anniversary interview they said that uh the only thing that they would hear from them while they were acting is often they would uh be laughing behind the cameras <laughs> and they'd have to like retake scenes because the coen brothers would be laughing at them actually doing yeah. the scenes and they uh goodman goodman uh um imitated their laugh and he kept doing this like hoo, 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 hoo. he was like is that joel and he's like no it's kind of both of them and they're like hoo, hoo, hoo. but yeah they get really into the scenes and just love love their humor and i think they probably you know they probably work so so intensely with one another and i think they have such a good idea of like is this going to work and you know kind of the meter and the rhyme and the the musicality of the humor until they see it up on their feet with somebody like John Goodman right. and, and Jeff Bridges doing it, like, is it, you know, really going to sing? And yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how you would keep a straight face through a lot of this shit. Even the Coen brothers on some level must have some anxiety, especially earlier on. Like, is this crazy thing that we dreamed up going to work? Yeah. Right. Cause they're only making films that like nobody else has made. Like they're only carving out things that are original to them yes. and, and feel like hit all of their, you know, their, the things that they need it to be in order to be fulfilling to them or for them to be interested in making it um but they're always going out on a limb and and playing without a net and this you know the big lebowski is one of the biggest risks that they've that they've taken um because who would have known that all of this craziness and the very specific pieces that they're putting together for it would work and work as well as it did so it must have been absolutely sublime to like yeah actually see these scenes unfold and and you know for them to actually be capturing these things and and having them be as as good as they are um and, and last for as long as they did you know i had another another thought about you know like um 
Tarantino, Scorsese, the Coen brothers, directors who are are maybe on some level known for being darker, more adult oriented filmmakers, certainly directors of R-rated movies, directors who are synonymous with some very violent or scenes and that kind of thing. But the thing that the, those three have in common, and, and obviously many others, is that they're so funny. Like, Tarantino doesn't get, yes. I, I don't think, enough credit for being as fun, like, laugh out loud, like, the, the comedy in some of these movies and the, and the funny moments are extremely funny. Uh, Scorsese as well. Goodfellas is hilarious. Uh, you know, like, some yeah. of his, his oh most God. violent movies are absolutely hilarious and um and the coins have that you know joe pesci talking about the painting in oh in yeah it's like that like, like still that one gets a laugh even like, one dog's looking over here the other dog's looking over there yeah, absolutely. this guy he don't care like like, like yeah. that they're that they're funny <laughs> and that they're ridiculous and that and that the you're, you're meant to like laugh at them it's not so self-serious or whatever that um you can't have laughter as part of the you know the experience of watching your film and that kind of thing and and the coens i think are some of the best at it where they've found their own comedic sensibility in their own the, the thing you know and, and they can put that on film and and um people respond to that in a way that that makes you know elevates these things like like uh, it's the thing that right. i felt like um inherent vice was missing was that like com comedy aspect of it where it's like this is all very funny you know situations and that kind of thing um but the film itself didn't you know, garner any any of that uh, specific comedy, even though Paul Thomas Anderson has the capacity to be very funny. So, um, oh yeah, yeah, it's a little more self serious. Yes, exactly. Like, in exactly. Harry Vice, it's it's trying a little bit too much to reference and to be this like cinematic work. Then I feel like the Big Lebowski's got a little bit lower ambitions, which <laughs> is perfect for the character and for the world and for everything they're doing. Yeah, I do think after now watching Inherit Vice a few times now and a few times recently, it is has become a movie that's a lot more funny there are things you pick up on you that are like mm. oh my god this is a, what is this squirrel ball choice that he made here <laughs> or just watching uh what's his face what eat. is martin short do that part's really funny there's just like weird little things throughout it that, like character choices and things that people do that become more funny but i do think the big lebowski is the better stoner noir movie in this capacity like there's yeah. like oh, yeah. there's not many stoner noir movies out there right. they're pretty far a few and far between um like it's 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 the big lebowski it's uh it's inherent vice it's um under the silver lake right. it's um yeah it's, it's, it's those and then the, the long, long goodbye, goodbye. Yeah, i think exactly. the long goodbye is is the height i i'm such an Al yeah. altman stan i i absolutely love that movie and this one is a very very close second uh just i just love because, the long goodbye know, i might put this above it i might yeah. put this above the long goodbye honestly I, that first that second inherent vice third under the silver lake fourth though i do really like under the silver lake it is a very okay. weird movie and a lot of people do not like it uh it has a little bit of controversy around yeah, it. it does um, I, I just watched it recently too and absolutely loved it I, I thought it was super yeah. entertaining and um, and you know I and I bet the reason that people didn't respond to that movie and, and certainly Inherent Vice um, is probably a lot of the same reasons that, that they might not have responded to Big Lebowski at first either yeah these aren't immediately accessible films each one has its own very specific and uh, like uh, like weirdness and, and vibe and and sort of like idiosyncrasies and all that um, so yeah it's it's it, t it takes it you know and it takes some investment and some rewatching and that kind of thing to to really appreciate any one of these movies but um i think for all three the the investment pays off 
if you like these kind of movies. It also helps if you do a J, man. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I just love how he, mind if I do a J? Do, oh, do you mind yeah. if I do a mind J? And he just like sucks the J down yeah. and then puts it in his mouth. Yeah. It's so good. I, I also think that Inherent Vice and Under the Silver Lake are more apparently confusing. Where, like I said, like the like the Big Lebowski is confusing when you think about it, but it's satisfying in the end. Yeah. Where yeah. Inherent Vice, you watch it and you're like, what the fuck just happened? What happened in that movie? Yeah. Under the Silver Lake kind of does something similar. You, you're you thrown into so many different scenarios without many answers that you're like, what did I just watch? Like, what yeah. was that thing? It's like, the, I think that can be You have to jarring. pay attention to all three. No, no doubt about it. Um, but the intended mm-hmm. experience, I think, of Inherent Vice and Under the Silver Lake is, is kind of what you're saying, Rocco, where it's like, it's, it's meant to be confusing or, or sort of like hard to follow and, and part, I don't know. It's like the, the experience is, whereas, um, Big Lebowski like it it all checks out it's clean storytelling end to end it, you just have to really pay attention mm-hmm. to to every little bit because there are so many things packed into these scenes that that give you exposition or connect the dots from one thing to another or um and it's you know and it's it's yeah it's it's definitely um a complex movie oh also just on the level of complexity there's a bit that uh you may miss if you watch the making of the Big Lebowski the one that's on the DVD and it's on YouTube uh but the Coen brothers the entire time are cleaning their nails. They're just sitting there and they're just like kind of absentmindedly like looking down and picking at their nails. They're both doing it and they're both just kind of like they're stopping it at times and they're going on a tangent that you can tell they actually like care about what they're talking about a little bit. But then they bring it back up and they're just playing with their nails. They're comedians. They're hilarious. They're like that is such a joke for them that is so subtle and stupid and just on the making of. I mean, in the same way that, you know, we were talking about was that Blood Simple Rocco where they made the full fake commentary track with a fake film historian. Yeah. Yeah. they they have jokes on top of jokes hidden within a joke and then yeah and then it's a reference to some you know old literature or something that they like they're probably cleaning their nails because they saw some silent film actor do it at some point you know there's i'm sure there's some metatextual joke that they have on top of it for why they're doing it and it's i don't know it's delightful it's <laughs> it's just it's always always great uh and why it makes it so rewatchable right oh yeah I mean, I think it's fun to sometimes be antagonized a little bit by the people that are putting things on for you, right? Like they kind of poke you with a stick and they- Yeah, not make it easy, you know? Yeah. Like you're going to dig into it a little bit more and like have a longer conversation if they don't just come out and go like the dude actually represents Eastern philosophy and Walter represents, yeah, you you know, Schwarzkopf, whatever dumb, you know, like uh, you don't necessarily need the animal farm explanation for like this character is a direct representation of this person. Right. Which. I mean, I think makes them better filmmakers for it in the end. Yeah. I think being less handholding and which is just a complaint of like American cinema sometimes. It's like, oh, my God, it, you know, it, it holds your hand too yeah, much. And too dumb I to think run. they are very much so like, we're not going to hold your hand. We're going to tell no. you a story. And if you pick up on the elements, you do. And if you don't, then too bad or watch it again. Exactly. Exactly. And they're very, they're very confident in that. And all their films sort of have that element where um, it, it like the Coen brothers are so much about calibration and they, they know the information that they need to give to the audience for them to be able to follow the film and enjoy the film, but they don't take a single step further than that. Like they're just very calibrated in how they uh, deliver information and, and how they sort of organize their, um, their stories. When um, Jeff Bridges signed on to do this, 
this movie, uh, one of the things I read is that he asked um, John Goodman, like, like, hey, when when are we going to get the rewrites? I just got the original script. Like, when do the rewrites come? And John Goodman goes, no, this is Coen Brothers. Like, there are no rewrites. This is the script. Yeah. Like, they don't they don't rewrite. Everything that's in there has been thought about, debated, probably acted out between the two. And, and you know, like, they've gone through their process of making what's on the page as perfect as possible. Um, and then from there, they're just putting together the plan for how they're going to execute it. But that's that's the, the meticulousness. It all happens in the prep side, the writing, the the you right. know the pre-production, and then um, from the from the the uh, actual filming of it is just execution of a of a of a plan, yeah. and um, and then they probably edit quickly because you know the takes are long. There's not a lot of cuts. Like in this movie, there's not a lot of cuts and scenes and, and scenes no. themselves. Like there, it's a lot of long takes and and that kind of thing. Um, and so and they shoot it wide. Yeah, they shoot they shoot wide and they can hold on a shot for two minutes and like wide angle lenses. Yeah, that exactly. Are also like mm-hmm. capturing a lot more. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it comes from that six to eight weeks of, of preparation for one that they do just with their storyboard artist, with right. J Todd Anderson, exactly. who, exactly. who, you know, goes through and draws everything and redraws and just everything is so perfectly planned out for when they come onto the set that, you know, it's, it's just executing a plan. Like you said, like it's just nailing down what they've already workshopped on every level from visually from you know the the lines everything yeah any other movie that ha- would have this energy like we said before this is not improv at all really uh, right. you would think this movie would have that type of like comedic energy and not to say that it wasn't fun because this is john goodman's favorite movie that he worked right on. and the and jeff bridges also said how oh, yeah. fun the making of this movie was that like they had a blast on set that they were laughing so much so it goes to show you that a, a filmmaking experience can be one, very well planned, very well written. Two, can be very, very meticulous uh, and very detailed, but still also be very, very fun. Like like a lot of film, uh, you'll hear horror stories from other filmmakers about how insane they are on set and like how like aggressive they are and like how, how you know, scripts aren't written until the last minute or e- even during production. The Coen brothers are the opposite. Or in the edit that. room like, when they make the movie out of a bunch of bull- the bullshit they yeah. like happen to capture and hope that <laughs> hope it all cuts together to make something yeah exactly makes sense yeah exactly and not to say that that's wrong in any way like other films work yeah that way but they're so meticulous and so knowledgeable of what they want right it's all there they don't need to shoot more they don't need to shoot yep. less they know exactly what they want and they get it and the uh, the actual experience within itself is a good experience people like working with them well bridges did say they had one disagreement uh on set the Coen brothers, they actually had one moment where they weren't, they, they disagreed over something and it was whether the dude would smile or wince when he was in the dream sequence, flying headfirst into a bunch of bowling alley uh, down the bowling alley and oh, into right. the pins. And Joel, I think was saying that he would smile and have like, you know, a, like happy go lucky face. And Ethan was like, no, he will wince. He'll be like, you know, uh, like bracing for impact. And they're like, okay, we're just going to shoot it both ways. And that's, that's the only real disagreement that they ever had. Everything else was, you know, they, they had figured it out. They knew what they were doing and they just execute, execute, execute. But yeah, they, they all spoke in that 20th, anniversary thing about how much fun they had and how much wow. they loved it and, you know seemed like three guys who were friends and stayed friends from the experience yeah 
You know, this is, I mean, this is something that's probably true for all Coen Brothers films, but I noticed it specifically watching it this time is like, I I wonder what the alternate takes of some of these shots even looked like. Like, I can't imagine that anything that, you know, that there's footage that exists that isn't what is in the film, right? Because everything in the film is is like kind of so perfect. That they tried playing it a different way. Yeah, it's like, I'm curious, I'd be curious to see like how many takes that they do on, on, and that kind of thing and see what some of those alternate takes even look like because um it all just feels so so like perfectly you know executed that they just kind of showed it feels like they just showed up got it but obviously in some of these more complex takes they, they must have tried you know over and over again to really kind of like get the rhythms down and, and the timing some of these longer takes um at the beginning i was i was talking about that shot where um where jesus is is introduced and they do the um shot of the the finger going up in the air and then it whip pans over to the the guys talking and then they do a similar yeah. kind of stunt um or, or long take uh trick in the end where they do it's it's the it's the final Final scene um, where dude and and the stranger are talking at the bar and and they have that that whole exchange and then dude walks off and the camera pans over to um, a bowler and the the bowler rolls a strike and it's the like the last shot so they have the talking scene you know two minutes of dialogue leading up to the to the two and a half minutes uh, leading up to the strike and then that uh, bowler who was actually a, a pro bowler and consultant on the film a guy named Barry Asher was ready to go he taught them all how to bowl taught him how to bowl and then was the guy that yeah, actually he, rolls he was, the strike at the end of the film like like how many takes did they have to do just to get the strike and then they they kind of cut it off before the the ball hits the pins though or they, the ball hits the pins but this doesn't show them all go down it was, it was supposedly kind of they a, did a few takes of that and he threw a strike each time amazing yeah <laughs> yeah that like that's again this is from the 20th anniversary conversation uh that that he taught uh walter and and dude how to bowl you know uh jeff bridges and and uh john goodman um he was like their coach and like their bowling instructor and then yeah he was they put him in at the end of the movie for that one scene just because they knew that he would be able to do it and he nailed the strike i think every time they, yeah. they were trying to remember and they said like you know i think they you know only did a few takes but yeah each time he threw a strike which I mean, the Coen brothers surround themselves with people who only ever throw strikes too, right? Sure. I mean, I think that's kind of yeah. <laughs> that's kind of the lesson here as well. Is like they're so prepared, but then they've got everybody around them that are all prepared to also throw strikes each time the, and the just, best of the yeah, best and yeah. make magic. Yeah, uh, Matt, I think there's one thing that I did see though that they had to change uh, while the, during production. You know, everything was perfectly planned and everything, but they tried to uh, have the dude drive a Chrysler oh, LeBaron. Right. Yeah. But oh. uh, Goodman couldn't fit into it. Yeah. So they got they got the Ford Torino <laughs> that's instead. Right. Yeah, uh, that's right. Um, the other thing I want to say is. Uh, Anytime that Philip Seymour Hoffman is on screen, just watch what he's doing. And this is kind of everything to oh be about mm-hmm. how like how good each of these you know actors are in the movie. But just watch it, 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 like the takes that that here he's in are so specific. He is doing something at every second of every shot that he's in, like acting. Even if he's not talking, he's acting and reacting through throughout the entire scene, and it's absolutely hilarious. These little tiny choices that he's making, all the way from from like when he gets uncomfortable to when he asserts himself, or to when yeah. he's you know like <laughs> not or, or try, it's it's all amazing. Like just just watch him. But like uh, yeah, it Philip Superhoffman. Hoffman. 
it like makes me laugh every time I watch this movie in in all of those exchanges. Release the Brant cut. <laughs> yeah, Just exactly, give us all of Brant's exactly. all Just of Brant's all scenes. Brandt, yeah, all the time. Yeah. Uh, yeah absolutely yeah that big laugh he does the awkward laugh where he just gets uncomfortable where he's like i'll blow you for a thousand bucks and then he just does the, like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like, it's so, it's like yeah because <laughs> it, it makes you wonder like has this happened before like what's uh, what's the backstory there um yeah but i love the scene when he's walking the dude down the uh row of pictures and all the things in in you know the jeffrey lebowski's you know home uh and and um yeah and there's that one moment where he like he's stutters and i was curious if that was in the script or not like that little stutter that that he does um that they that they definitely leave in where he does he basically yeah. like does a retake it's just like it's a very quick very subtle thing but it's it's just like everything he's doing in that in that one and it's you know one long unbroken shot like it's it's just so um so good the way that that works he is the perfect like ass kisser of like trying to like subvert anybody having like a bad time right. or like a weird expectation because yeah. like his re- all his reactions to the dude are like oh, oh, oh the dude oh, yeah, yeah it's yeah. fine like it's all just like he's like trying to put out a fire constantly right. <laughs> and also trying to like and trying to like play up his boss as much as possible but it's like his he has like eyebrow raises and like looks down at the ground at moments you're right Matt he's doing yeah. so it's, much it's at great. all times yeah. And he's building up the Big Lebowski to be an even bigger, you know, caricature. Right. Like he is adding yes. to the artifice that is the Big Lebowski exactly. entirely by, exactly. you know, being this smithersy kind of character that just like you know, makes him out to be such a genius. Like, you know, like, oh, those are the little Lebowski urban achievers making everything sound so important yes. and beautiful. And, you know, yeah, yeah, I it, yeah. it's an amazing character. I mean, it's it's again, like uh, w- calling in somebody to throw a strike every time I, yeah. you can you can do a lot worse than philip seymour hoffman uh yeah he's amazing I, he's he's got to be yeah top of the list of of the weird people they meet along the way uh brant and then <laughs> i think you know you were talking about it uh before matt mod as well right mod lebowski played by julian moore who is such an incredible role such a just cool character and i think we were talking about this on the uh the cohen bro olympics kind of unbelievable that she never did another Coen Brothers movie. Right. Like, this isn't yes. a huge role. It's very impactful and hilarious. And so specifically her, I think they said that the, the Coen Brothers kind of gave her the idea of who the character was. And then she added that kind of non-specific, like finishing school kind of accent, kind yeah. of European, yeah. but nothing that you can pinpoint. Right. Yeah. That was all Julianne Moore's, uh, you know, idea. And I uh, just, a fucking hilarious character and then yeah like i you would think that she would come back around and be in like 10 more of these kind of roles like they kind of you know the 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 francis mcdormand and holly hunter roles that they you know consistently uh consistently write but i guess are kind of dominated by those two uh and surprisingly neither neither of them played this role uh you know usually the the stable of uh Coen Brothers yeah, true. acolytes that they put in these roles all the time. Yeah. But she just brings I, like a, such a different energy to it and just. Well, and, and it brings you into a, a totally unexpected world. I mean, you know, and, and is the yes. sort of passageway into some of the weirder and more crazy ideas that this movie has. Um, like all, and, and obviously she's the connective tissue between all of these different 
factions, the nihilists and the Lebowskis and, you know, all that stuff. Like every, she's, she's oh, yeah. just in the center of everything. She's like, she's like I may have, introdu- I may have introduced him. I may have yeah. introduced Carl to Bush. Yes. Like, I don't right, know. Exactly. Like she, like, she's kind of the only person with, she, she may have most of the story. She, I don't think she yes. has all of the story, but she kind of is the, the most reliable narrator. She kind right. of, she's the straightest shooter, you know, she doesn't really, she's the straightest she's shooter. trying to she, like lie about anything. She's very forward with like, I'm trying to conceive. Right. Like she may not be yeah. upfront with the information, but she'll tell you when you need to know. And that's like kind of the, again, you know, to make men look even that much more pathetic and stupid, like give the woman kind of all the power in the dynamic. Sure. And, you know, she, she, she becomes even that. Cool, much cooler and interesting. You could easily argue that none of the characters in the movie are people that you should want to emulate, but you could easily say that she is the most intelligent person. In oh, without a doubt. Like she is yeah. like she is the smartest person in the room. Like you said, she has the most information. She actually can have a conversation with people. My favorite, one of my favorite scenes in this movie is when the dude Maud and David Thules' character yes. uh, Knox Harrington yes. are all together in the, the same video room. artist. The video artist Knox Harrington, and when he gets on the phone with mod whoever they're talking to on the other line and them just laughing hilariously <laughs> at whatever is going on on the other line is amazing it is it is beautiful and lewis does such a good job of being this quirky weird smarter than you asshole artist and plays it so well yeah. and the dude just hates him it's it's perfect time. um and that you know this goes back to sort of like the, the the calibration aspect of of their scene work but um that they added that character they they noticed that this was just a long exposition scene without anything else really going on. So they created that whole character and had the idea to, to put him in there just to create something else happening in that scene that uh, would break up some of the, the monotony of the exposition. Like like it added, and what a memorable, like little add-on to that scene and, you know, bringing yeah. in David Thewlis for one, you know, for one part. Uh, and, I, uh, and I did not know that was him. Yeah, it doesn't look like a... Yeah, yeah, last yeah. week. I just never, I never thought about who that guy was. And then I like even looked at the cast and I was like, Knox Harrington. Knox Harry. Oh, the video artist. Yeah, right, and that's right. when like it all came together. I was like, Oh God, that's foolish. Like, yeah. Just again, bring in another guy to throw a strike. Right. Exactly. That's that's exactly. dude. Like that's, that's yeah. Just a small little part, like, you know, probably on for a day. I mean, Sam Elliott was on the shoot for two days. Yep. He was only yeah. there for two days and he got all of that out of him. And I, I think, you know, didn't really understand even what kind of movie he was making. But again, just, they knew the energy that he'd bring and they are such like, you know, uh, conductors of symphonies and were able to know that, that he would bring that brand of, you know, mustachioed, uh, you just, uh, gravitas <laughs> yeah. to every one yeah. of those lines and then would make the movie, make it all kind of sing and come together and be that beautiful clash of kind of the West coast, like old world cowboys that California used to, uh, represent. And then kind of the seventies hippie that, you know, uh, the dude kind of represented then in the later form of California and then kind of what it's become now is the scary world that they're lost in. Right. Right. I mean, that's kind of the, all of those things. And then of course, porn and, uh, uh, Jackie Treehorn coming into that equation. Who's Ben Gazzara, another awesome bit part like character, just seventies. Yeah. Coen brothers showing all of their, uh, um, favorite things that, you know, favorite kind of like seventies movies and like all the references that they're throwing in there by just having him appear in this small role. You know, and then like, but then the casting of David Huddleston as the big Lebowski, like that was the one role that they didn't have figured out right away or sort of who would play them. And they went down a pretty insane 
cast of of actors like that they were they that did. they were considering. Um, they they first went to Robert Duvall who passed on it because he didn't understand the script. Um, Anthony Hopkins didn't want to play an American. Uh, Gene Hackman was not acting at the time that they were casting this, taking a break. Um, and so they went to this like second wish list of of you know really oddball choices: Norman Mailer, uh, George C. Scott, Jerry Falwell, uh, Gore Vidal. <laughs> that's a joke. Wow, yeah. that's one hundred percent. That is that is a Coen Brothers metatextual joke that they slipped in there that they were going out to Jerry Falwell yeah, to play the character. I would imagine. That is just, yeah. that is no, Jerry Falwell has never appeared in a movie. Jerry Falwell <laughs> has never acted. Yes, he has not acted. I, he would yeah. never, ever do that. But it's so funny to say that he was on the list of people that they were casting because he would have been perfect for it. Yeah, I was gonna He's say, exactly yeah, this it, kind of huckster. It would have worked but on some like, level. No but... way. In same with William F. Buckley, right. who's on this list. Yeah. Like, again, you know, another a politician, choice. not an actor, not going to play the role. Yeah, no, the only so one. Funny I mean, George C. Like, Scott. We considered him. Yeah, George C. Scott's yeah. interesting. But Ernest Borgnine is, is really the only one that I can even a picture in in that role but even still not not holding yeah. a candle to uh david huddleston they, they cast the right person oh absolutely absolutely yeah. well they wanted brando was their number one choice but that was the, so that was the main was, choice was, yeah. was brando and that they would even like quote the, the, some of the lebowski lines as marlon brando as like an onset joke and that kind of thing but could you imagine the meticulous like structured nature of the uh, of the coen brothers working with the insane chaos <laughs> yeah. that is later day Marlon Brando. No, not like at all. he would have been such a shitstorm that they would not have wanted to deal with in any way or form. He would have been so hard to deal with. And he's notorious for just for not reading the script lines. Yeah, exactly. Whatever he wants. Yeah. I mean, you gotta look. I you know, all the people that they bring to play are there to play. Right. I mean, yeah. the people they haven't really had there's no story of an actor who was who didn't understand what the Coen brothers brand was and didn't come and were like trying to break them out of it. You know, like, is there anybody that they've worked with that wasn't like there to play? Like, you know, they, they tried to get Tom Cruise for Hudsucker proxy. They wanted Tom Cruise and Clint Eastwood to play the two main roles of that two guys who would have never played along with the Coen brothers like vibe. And I think that's the thing is that like, they may, have these pie in the sky, like ideas of who, who they're going to get in there. But then when they really like break it down, like they can't work with those people in the same way that they don't work with producers who want to give them notes. Like they just are very specific and, you know, do things their way. Like I, yeah, you're right. Brando would have broken them. It would have been a nightmare. No, it it goes back to, um, M Emmett Walsh. I think that in the experience they had with him on Hudson proxy where he was, he was a little bit, yeah, he's definitely assertive and, you know, very uh, uh, difficult, but that they overcame that and, and, you know, remain friends and, and that kind of thing. But but probably certainly learned that, you know, and that's something that that came with uh, several great films. Right. Like that once you once once they really got past um, Raising yeah. Arizona, I think I think the whole sort of industry just kind of opened up and people were willing to, you know, David Thewlis and, and John Turturro were willing to come in for two days and just do do bit parts and, yeah. and bigger movies and put their egos aside just to yeah, just to play, just to have fun and, and, and make something make something great, try to make something matter. Memorable. Absolutely. Do you guys have a favorite line? I I, I love human human paraquat. I love <laughs> human. Okay. <laughs> it's because it's just like you human paraquat. Like it just like he says it with like he might actually know what that word means because it has something to do with we. Yes. And that's like the one big word that he really knows. Yeah. <laughs> and I just love that. I gotta go with you're not wrong, Walter. You're just an asshole. 
Oh, okay. That so that, is... that one I really yeah. like. The other one that I like too is Walter, I love you, but sooner or later you're going to have to face the fact that you're a goddamn moron. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that one too. Like all the, all the dude Walter stuff. I mean, there's so many just in their interactions. There's so many to, to choose from, yeah. but like careful man, I have a beverage here. Like I, you know, that's what all, yeah. all, all the time. There's, there's so many good ones. And the last thing I got to ask you guys, all right, three of us, three of them, which nihilist are you? Oh, I'm probably flea. <laughs> no, but actually more importantly, which of the three do you guys, I, cause I think I was trying to, I was trying to come up with the trio of the, the three main characters. Do you think we can each fall into one of, one of the, uh, one are you, are of you the saying dynamics? Walter Donnie or the dude? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The nihilist is just to throw you guys off, but no, I think, I think, cause I think I figured out for myself. I think I'm Walter. I think as much as I want to be <laughs> oh, the dude and want to, you know, live that lifestyle. I, I think there's a simmering rage underneath most of the things that, uh, I try to keep boiled up and, uh, uh, yeah, I think uh, I think I'm Walter. I think uh, you know, grandstanding is definitely a part of uh, part of my uh, core uh, <laughs> core being. Uh, yeah, I think I think I'd be the soap check of the group. I don't like guns as much as he does, and I did not serve, but maybe Walter didn't either. <laughs> uh, none of us, you know, none of us have that conservative bend, you know, at all. Yeah, I, I think I think it's the vengeance angle and the grandstanding and the the anger. Of Walter. <laughs> I think that's I think that's where uh, we we are similar beings. I, I, I say I'm similar to Walter in the fact that I'm loud. I'm just a loud, yeah. abrasive human being, uh, even when I'm not intending to be. So th there's that aspect of it. Uh, also, there's a lot of times where I, even as loud as I am, sometimes I'm like, I, like, I may be as loud as I am because I feel like people don't listen to me. So maybe I am Donnie in that capacity yeah. a little bit where I'm just like, I'm just keep talking. I'm like, Are you, you guys, do you hear what I say? I'm like, I'm talking. Like, and maybe, maybe I am I Donnie. Think, I think you're Donnie. I think you're Donnie. I think that makes you dude, Matt. I'll, I'll take dude. Yeah, there's there's certainly yeah. aspects of his life that uh, that that I can I can uh, understand or sympathize with. But you know, I, there's there's things with all three that that I can relate to as well, though. Too. I, I think it depends on what what kind of day I'm having and uh, which yeah. you know which which am I sort <laughs> of fitting into. Yeah, that that day, uh, I could certainly take a Donnie role in the, in the right situation. And and there's plenty of times where uh, I've I've you know had a plan not come together in spectacular fashion you know and, and like the way that uh walter would uh fuck something up so royally so uh you know yeah. I, can, I can certainly um relate to that as well but yeah no i i would have pegged us all for a, like a little of each but it, def it we definitely yeah, have yeah, some yeah. dude in us too um you know like the, the dude has has rubbed off on us and in, in, in a significant way as well so um <laughs> yeah I, I can see can that. i quote one more line that i really love yeah. um when he's talking to the big Lebowski in the in the uh, the limousine uh, after it's found out he's fucked up the plan and just like avoided talking to him for so long, uh, and the dude goes, "We dropped off the damn money," and Big Lebowski goes, "We," yeah. he goes, "I," he goes, "I," the royal we, yeah, you know, right. the editorial. <laughs> He's just trying to make some type of like cover for himself and nobody believes a goddamn word that he's saying. And what's the one, the, there's the line about being a pacifist. Uh, I myself have dabbled in pacifism once, uh, not during Nam, of course, like all that stuff. <laughs> not yeah. during Nam, of course. Yeah, when he pulls the gun on Smokey, yeah, like that stuff is so great. That is a insane, amazing scene where everybody just gets revealed to who they are. Yeah. Like their characters really yeah. just come through in that scene. <laughs> oh man. Well, there, we've, we've talked about a lot of amazing people in this movie and there's also a fair amount of connections uh, to the movies that we've done in the past that I'm sure you guys have picked up on. 
Um, Sam Elliott is in both the Big Lebowski and A Star Is Born. Yeah, uh, playing a gruff, a gruff old cowboy in both, and he still has the same exact mustache. Uh, that mustache has been frozen in time for forty-five years. It's neither grown nor got cut. That's just my 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 uh, legacy building out there. I'm not saying that's true. I'm just saying that because I like that idea. Steve Buscemi and Peter Stormare were both in. Armageddon, hell yeah! Together, oh, right? Yeah. In total, there were eleven people that worked on the Big Lebowski and Blood Simple, obviously including both the Coen brothers uh, and and Carter Burwell and Skip Leavesay. So, wow. but there were some other like stunt people and other like hair hair and makeup individuals that were also working on both of those films. Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman was in the Big Lebowski and Twister, right? And then right. finally, my last connection is Julianne Moore was in the Big Lebowski and the Fugitive, right? Yes, she was. Mm-hmm. Oh, what a great actress. And someday I'm sure we'll we'll do a ton more of her movies. Yeah. Uh, I can't wait to do Boogie Nights. Yep. She was just really cleaning it up in the late 90s. There. Boogie Nights and Magnolia. I yeah. cannot wait to cover, which also has Philip Seymour Hoffman. They're amazing. To yeah. Get. I mean, I feel like like this Lebowski is what um, she was working on. So it was like a fugitive that got her Lost World. Lost World got yes. her this. She was sent the script to this while she was working on Lost World, uh, which is that little Spielberg connection. And then, yeah, from here it was Boogie Nights and, um, and you know, Lost World would have come out right around, uh, like right before this movie came yeah. out and all this stuff. So she was uh, a, a very, like, uh, famous, you know, actress, but then getting some of the best roles that of her life at this point. So um, really amazing. Yeah. Well, that's it for The Big Lebowski. We are Matt, Rocco, and Alex, and we'll be back next week with our second and final entry in this year's Cohen Bro Olympics. Get ready for Raising Arizona. Please remember to rate, review, and follow. Send us questions, comments, your example of a human paraquat, and your suggestion for the next mini marathon. Bye-bye. See ya. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. <laughs> <laughs>